Hey, this is Rob Pennington from By the Grace of God, Jupiter Hearts, and Point, and you are listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And in the guest host chair today, I've got Jason Camacho of Audio Karate. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jason, it's exciting to have you here. I've had Arturo on the show before. You may be familiar with that. But now I have you here, and Audio Karate has some new music coming out. This is the first music audio karate has recorded in what almost 20 years uh yeah i mean the first new music we recorded it in 2021 so definitely anything um post 2006 that must be an incredible feeling it was it was super scary in some regards because i feel like every song you write at least for me i'm like okay that was it like i will never write another riff that is catchy or anything that arturo and those guys will approve of and that, that was it. I, I blew my wad and we can't do it again. Uh, so I think there was some apprehension on sort of all of our parts uh, as to whether or not we could do something that first and foremost, we'd be satisfied with, right? And that we can take to people that we value their opinions and certainly uh, people who've listened to us for, for 20 years and not feel like, oh, here, we're doing this because screw it. Like, no, we're, we're happy with it. And it's something that I think stands up to anything we've done. So it was a cool experience. I love it. Yeah, I know that feeling. I think every band is going to be my last, you know? Sometimes every song going to be my last, because uh, once it's done, it's done. But that is not the case. That is not the case. And you know what, Jason? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad Audio Karate has music coming out. And I'm also very happy about today's interview subject. Dave Smalley. Dave Smalley, Jason, can you believe it? No, it's freaking legend, man, really. Yeah, I, I've... All right. Uh, to say he's done everything is an understatement. DYS, Dag Nasty, All, Down by Law, Don't Sleep. We cover everything. And Dave, you know, this is a really special episode. Dave has really got away with words and away with a story. And this just covers the gamut of everything we love to hear about. Great old scene stories, fights, working with Ian Mackay. All the classic bands that he's been involved with, we cover everything. You've heard it, Jason. Tell them. Tell them how great it is. If you think it's great. If you don't think it's great, you can tell them that too. I mean, I'm a, I'm an LA guy, so in a single word, I just say dope. Like it's dope. <laughs> <laughs> Do people still say that in LA? Probably not. I don't know what they say. They say weird stuff. But uh, if you you came of age in 2000, you say dope. Or if you're an audio karate, you say dope and full and stuff like that. Well, listen, the conversation with Dave is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Shirts. We've got a fine selection of shirts over at Death Wish Inc. Short sleeve, long sleeve, you name it. Reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you write a nice review, I'll read it on the air. 
And on Spotify, once you listen to the episode, there's this Q&A thing I just discovered. And they're like, what did you think of the episode? You can write something in there. I'll see it. You know, let us know how we're doing. And you can always contact me at newscenepod at iodinerecordings.com as well. And don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Audio Karate, a show of hands EP is out right now. You'll hear more about that from Jason later in the show, but make sure you order it and check it out on the streaming service of your choice today. Hey, thanks. Just premiered a video for This Small Space, and that's easily my favorite song from their debut LP, Start Living. The Quicksand Slip 30th Anniversary Tour is coming to a city near you starting in October. Tickets are on sale now, so get them while they last. Quicksand will also be performing Slip in full at Riot Fest. The Quicksand Deluxe hardcover book is still available. Get yours before it's gone, because once it's gone, that's it. This is a beautiful hardcover book detailing the life of the band from 1990 to 1994, with a foreword by Walter Schreifels himself. Sign up for the Iodine email list. You'll find out about everything first. For more information, head to the Iodine Instagram at Iodine Recordings or to the Iodine website at iodinerecordings.com. And don't forget to support this month's sponsor, New Morality Zine. That's right, New Morality Zine. They are a Midwest-based zine and independent record label specializing in hardcore, post-hardcore, and alternative music. The label has released music for bands such as Sunstroke, Buggin, Life's Question, Downward, Spite House, Demo Division, Spaced, and more. And you know what? NMZ is currently very busy this summer with pre-orders and releases from Oklahoma heavy alternative band Curse the Knife. Their second full-length, There's a Place I Can Rest, is up for pre-order now, and that's out on September 8th. The latest release from Philadelphia's Sunstroke. It's a split 7-inch with San Diego's Bent Blue. The split sees both bands honing in their melodic hardcore sound and including covers of some outside influences. This is a split release with War Records, and it's out now on 7-inch and streaming. Check out Stateside's explosive take on hardcore emo with the release of their 12-inch EP, It's What We Do, and that's out July 21st on New Morality Zine and Extinction Burst Records. The NMZ roster is also hitting the road this summer with tours from Downward and Prize Horse. They're both touring much of the U.S. Spaced is currently in Europe, and Spite House are playing Maritime Canada in August. All right, I've got more good news for you. Are you ready for this? You can get 10% off any order in the NMZ web store with the code NEWSCENEPOD. That's all one word, new scene pod. Use that code, get 10% off. Come on, what are we doing? For more information, check out New Morality Zine on Instagram. That's at New Morality Zine. Or head to their website at newmoralityzine.com. Okay. So Jason, I'm curious. What have you been listening to lately? Lay it on us. Oh, God. Um... By the way, before you tell us, I love how off guard this question just makes everybody. Almost everybody I ask, they're always like, "Oh no, oh god!" It's it's like it's like a salacious question. 
Well, I, I, I'd say this, Keith, like if you want to know what I'm listening to, that's easy. I, I can always do that. If you want to know what I'm listening to, that's somehow relevant to probably the people that listen to the new scene or that are tied into sort of the punk rock, indie kind of hardcore space. That's that's challenging. I want to know what Jason Camacho, the man himself, is listening to now. And it doesn't have to be heavy. It doesn't have to be punk. It doesn't have to be related to the scene at all. I want to know the essence of you. All right. Well, uh, ahead of this interview and knowing that you were going to be talking to, to Dave, um, I listened to a lot of all, which is always fantastic, but that's kind of always in, in my monthly rotation. I, uh, I listen to YouTube. Um, like I use that as my streaming service of choice. And I listen to, there's this guy, he's not American, but he uploads these weird, like 60s and 70s uh, supermarket like music that comes on this weird format that isn't an LP and it's not an eight track. It was like uh, brand specific for these companies. And I love it. I love everything about it. It's like orchestral and it it's nostalgic and it's kind of mid-century American and it's just good background music to life. It's my favorite shit in the whole world. Like the guitars, and the bass and the uh, the strings and it's wonderful. Whoever was playing the music are like fucking tense. So I've been listening to that a lot. Um, there is a group called the Escorts, and uh, they did a record in prison. They were all guy like prisoners, and an A and R guy from Motown discovered them somehow in the '60s, and somehow convinced the prison board they were in, I believe, New Jersey in, in a prison there. And they got nine hours of recording time in the prison. And uh, I listen to that a lot. So that's, But that's like uh, sort of like Chicano oldies. My, my dad um, and is, you know was into that and kind of low rider sort of gangster scene. Um, so that music is, is a big staple and sort of what I grew up listening to. And then in terms of stuff that would be more sort of guitar- driven um audio karate recorded some music last month so i've been going through the mixes and edits and listening to those a ton and i'm actually happy with them so I'm that's amazing right always uh, a bonus when you're happy with the music you're writing and recording it you know because uh, we're our, we are our own worst critics yeah, without belaboring it. So Taylor Swift did Taylor's version, right? So we're we've started recording. Um, I don't know if you you checked out when Thrice redid uh, the artist in the ambulance as sort of like a hey, this is a, a modern take on it. Yeah. So our first record, Space Camp, uh, we were never really happy with the production, and we really weren't ready to make like a true record record, and it. It shows like I listen to, I can't really listen to it. I can listen to Lady Melody and Malo and Otra and, and I'm okay with those. But I listen to Space Camp and it's just like cringy moment that probably only we can hear in the band. But it's just moment after moment of stuff that I would like to change. So we've started as kind of one-offs um, when the band gets together because we don't all live in the same state. We'll book some studio time and, and record a track or two. Um, so these are like, if we knew then what we know now, and if we were as competent to make a record, this is how those songs would have sounded. And I'm really, really happy with the product. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's like Audio Karate Space Camp, Husto's version. I uh, I like what you're talking about with uh, YouTube and the, the old supermarket music. My favorite thing is to just go into these deep, dark YouTube 
holes and and just look at stuff like i've been looking at tons of titanic stuff <laughs> because of of that of that ocean gate sub tragedy that happened the people died so i've been looking at a lot of titanic footage and there's a cool video of just underwater titanic stuff with the ambient music playing in the background so that was cool and i listened to a lot of silent hill music people do these super long edits of silent hill music like slow down and ambient and I listen to that while I'm working, and uh, it's good stuff. Yeah. I, other than that, I've got just a constant rotation of Descendants, Guided by Voices, and MGMT. Like, those three bands I probably listen to more than anything. Nice. Yeah. Most of what I'm listening to still is everything on the show. I'm actually in a very fortunate position because every band I listen to is on the show. So it's just like, it's just a reflection of what I'm listening to. Did you ever think you'd be in a position to be doing that? Like, oh, I listen to this guy. Oh, hey, I'm talking to him next week. No, never. And it still blows my mind every single week. Yeah, you guys have some really awesome guests. So thank you for uh, slumming it with me and allowing me on. Hey, hey, no, you're a guest and I'm very, very excited to have you here. So listen, check back in with me and Jason in segment three. We're going to talk to Jason some more. He's got some history with all and some some commentary on Dave Smalley. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about everything that's going on with Audio Karate. We'll talk about ourselves. We'll cover everything. But right now, we are going to speak to Dave Smalley of Dag Nasty. Enjoy. We are here now with Dave Smalley. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Keith. It's really nice to be with you and speak with you and your audience. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Dave, it's great to have you here. And you know what? To say that you've done it all, I think, is a bit of an understatement. DYS, Dag Nasty, all, Down by Law, and of course, now Don't Sleep. Don't Sleep's got a new record coming out. And you know what, Dave? We're going to cover all of that and more. But first, I want to ask you a question. How are you doing today? Wow, thanks. Nobody really ever asks that. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, like everybody in this human family of ours, uh, there's challenges and struggles. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm doing okay. I just made it through this um, rather large storm uh, passing through and uh, no, uh, no trees went down and we're able to talk. So, uh, I'm, I'm happy about that. And, um, look, I mean, we're here talking about music and, and hopefully, you know, uh, joy and inspiration. And, um, 
you know, I think that, uh, you know, with that being said, I'm going to be right here in the present for this moment and say, I'm doing great. That's great to hear. Where, where do you live? Where was the storm? So I live, uh, near, uh, Pensacola, Florida, uh, now due to, uh. yeah, I moved down here temporarily for family matters and still here for now and still miss Virginia and DC a lot, but uh, that's where I am now. Where are you usually when you're not in Florida? Uh, Virginia in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, what's your, fa- what's your family structure? Are you married? You got kids? What's going on? Oh boy. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I am, I am not, uh, married currently and I do have, um, five children, which is really wonderful. And, uh, that's, that's a true source of joy for me as a dad, you know, I love being a dad and, um, my kids are all luckily for me. Um, they are all awesome kids and some of them are young adults now. So, um, you know, they, they, they are, you know, grown up individuals, some of them, and some of them are, you know, I've down all the way down to an eight year old. So it's great. That's amazing. Wow. So you, uh, I'm just looking at your musical resume. I was like, wow, this is the busiest guy ever. And you have that, you have you, uh, going to college and grad school and all of that and kids on top of it. I wonder how you find the time and the energy. Uh, well, that's a great question. I think I have, uh, bags under my eyes that probably attest to, you know, some years <laughs> and some, and lack of enough sleep. But, um, yeah, I mean, so nobody can ever have, you know, everything perfectly balanced in life. Um, you know, I just watched that movie recently, uh, the Elvis movie that came out a couple of years ago, that was such a big hit that, that, you know, got nominated for some, yeah. for some Academy Awards and things. And, um, first of all, I thought it was really well done. And, uh, you know, Tom Hanks was incredible in it as, as in the role of the Colonel. Uh, I didn't even recognize him, and his his portrayal was was uh, very uh, uh, commanding and insidious. You know, it just you, you were like, "Oh, I really don't like this." You know, this character. You know, and it's true. I don't think Colonel Parker was meant to. You know, he wasn't a good dude. You know, so um, anyway, uh, the reason I'm saying that is you got a sense in there of how much Elvis uh, was pushed, pulled, you know, uh, squeezed, and 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 never quite got to do actually some of the things he really wanted to do, which I didn't know that until the movie. Uh, for instance, he never really got to go to Europe. He went to Europe as a, you know, when he was in the army um, as a GI, but he never got to go and perform um, as Elvis Presley in, in the, in the, in Europe and uh, like he wanted to do in Asia. So it's, uh, you know, I think everybody has these kinds of struggles in life, whether you're, you know, a, uh, Elvis Presley or your, you know, uh, whatever, an accountant or a teacher or any other of our normal careers, you know, and, and, uh, that are good, positive careers. You're always sort of fighting the clock as it were for everything you'd like to do. So you make your choices and you, um, and you do your best and then you, you accept that, uh, you know, at any given time, there's going to be things you can't do because you can't do it all. And you have to just try and be at peace with, with those choices you make. I like that. I like that. And hope you, and hopefully you live long enough to, to make some good choices and experience some things that, that you want to do, right? Because it could go either way. There's people who got successful way too young and burned out and they're gone. And there's people like Elvis who got super successful and got wrapped up with the wrong people and taken down a dark path. And then, uh, you know, the, the, any number of things can happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will say this to you and to your your audience. Um, uh, you know, I've lost friends. I lost some 
during during COVID, and and uh, I've lost you know both my parents and and other things. You know, there's been some serious uh, loss in my life, and my my one of my really good friends, Kenny Brown, who was a great tattoo artist uh, from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, actually, which is where uh, Don't Sleep is from. And uh, and then Kenny moved down to Fredericksburg and opened a tattoo studio, and and he's a fabulous artist, just absolutely you know, an incredible artist. And, and, uh, uh, most of my good art on my body is from Kenny. Um, so, uh, in fact, I, I kind of want to do a photo shoot at some point, not out of vanity, but simply to document some of Kenny's work. Um, and he always loved doing me because, you know, um, he, he, he just, he had this, this saying Kenny Brown did, he said, go big or go home. So when he did like a ghost rider or a Batman or, you know, I did a, a motorhead ace of spades or whatever, like he did all of those for me and, and he, uh, go big or go home. So they're all pretty big and they're all pretty colorful and vibrant. So I really want to pay homage to Kenny Brown. And, but anyway, yeah, I lost Kenny. Uh, we, we, the world lost Kenny, great talent, uh, you know, in the last couple of years. So. Uh, yeah, loss happens. So I would encourage everybody to hug your loved ones and your pets close, you know, and uh, don't forget your pets because they love you and they need you. And um, and then to to realize that, uh, you know, it sounds kind of like a cliche. Every day is a gift, but it kind of is. So that's a that's a that's a maxim that you can live by. And so, you know, enjoy it. And I know it's hard to let go of uh, sometimes, you know, uh, memories that are, have you angry at your former friend or, you know, um, fear about breaking up with your romantic relationship at a time or whatever those fears are from past or future, but live in the present, live in the moment and enjoy it and, and treat those around you with dignity and love. And, and that's pretty much a good life. I like that. You sound pretty centered, Dave. Have you always been this centered or was it a long path to get there? Um, I, I, I think we all, evolve in life, right? And you're not the same person you are when you're 30 that you were at 20 and and so forth, you know? And uh, so for me, I definitely have morphed from, I kind of went the whole gamut, you know, at age 18, I was, I was Luke Skywalker. And then I, you know, kind of morphed into Han and was traveling the world and having adventures and doing all kinds of stuff and some danger actually at times. And, you know, and then now I'm Obi-Wan and my role now is to be a mentor and to encourage and to, uh, you know, uh, support the the good side of the force. Right. So, um, you know, that's an analogy obviously, but, uh, yeah. So, so I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, probably a little more grounded now than I have been at different points in my life. And I'm definitely a lot more philosophical and thoughtful. Probably I've always tried to be caring and loving and thoughtful, but I feel like now, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty locked into the, my philosophy of kindness and, and caring. Yeah, I think uh, that happens when you get older, or it should at least. You know, when I was younger, uh, I was not very philosophical, and I was running around wreaking havoc. Uh, now that is not the case. Right, right. And, and you know, uh, what's the old cliche? Youth is wasted on the young, you know, yeah. and, and the old one, <laughs> sure if, if I knew then what I know now. And it's true. But on the other hand, you know, staying out all night, uh, going to punk shows and listening to you know, uh, the germs and bad brains till four in the morning, that's not such a bad thing either, you know? So, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, there's every, every phase, you know, uh, to, to quote the, I think it's the birds uh, to everything. There is a season turn, 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 you know? So, um, you know, that's, that's okay. The passage of seasons and the different things we've done at different ages, uh, 
tends to be right where we needed to be at that moment. I've heard you talk about when you're younger, you know, you were straight edge. Did you, were you straight edge before you discovered the music or did that come with the music? So yeah, that's an interesting question. I was actually essentially straight edge largely before I discovered the music. And then of course, you know, two things kind of crystallized it for me. Um, one was uh, uh, obviously Minor Threat, the song Straight Edge. And um, and I thought it was just cool because, you know, I came up in the early scene of DC, right? So, um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I would go to shows at the old 930 Club and other places. And, um, you know, that's where those famous X's that, you know, are the straight edge symbol, you know, because that came out from clubs that would put a huge X on your hand, especially the 930. So you could not possibly go to the bar and order a drink because you had this huge, thick black marker, you know, you know, I'm sure that it was not good for our health. Um, And then of course, (laughs) all of us who were straight edge started taking that as a badge of honor and we were putting it on ourselves. I mean, I, I should have bought stock in, you know, um, you know, the magic marker companies because I was putting so much of that stuff on me, you know, I can smell it as you're explaining. Exactly. It's permeating, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, but then I, I never really, um, uh, so it was a natural fit for me because I, I also, it was interesting. I lived in France when I was in seventh and eighth grade. My dad, you know, worked for, for, uh, for the state department and, and we were over there for two years when I was in Paris in seventh and eighth grade, 13, 14 years old. And that's kind of the age when a lot of people start doing stuff, right? Whatever the stuff is that they start doing smoking or, or drinking or whatever. And, um, when I was there, I really, you know, the culture is very different there. So certainly pot was a lot less prevalent at that time in that location. Uh, they did drink more because they were raised with it more around them and it really wasn't as a big a deal. So I was kind of raised in an environment when a lot of people sort of start going down a certain path. Um, I never had those paths before me, um, you know, and so I came back in ninth grade and some of my buddies from uh, you know, earlier times, elementary school, essentially, uh, had a couple of them had become real hardcore, you know, um, stoners and, you know, and I still love them and they were cool dudes and they love me and everything was good, but I really saw the difference it had made in their, in their lives. And that also, uh, made me say, Hey, for me, that's not the path I want to take. You know, even at a young age, I was kind of like, yeah, that's not, that's not the direction for me. And again, never a condemnation of those who chose different paths. Everybody has their own path. And, but for me, for my path, I was like, yeah, that's, that's not what, that's not my thing. So yeah, straight edge was always a natural. I find that fascinating. Cause I've heard you talk about too, like kind of, a, it was a response maybe as well to the seventies and like all the drug rock and everything oh, that was yeah, going on. Absolutely, Keith. Absolutely. In opposition to that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so the, what people forget is that, um, the seventies, you know, you think of like disco and, and, uh, maybe like journey or whatever. I don't know. Journey might've been eighties or whatever. Those kind of REO speedway, whatever those kind of bands are that were like huge arena rock and maybe, um, not too much like the stuff that you and I probably love, but, um, seventies had some amazing rock bands, right? Like the who at their peak, um, Zeppelin, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, just, just, you could go down the list of, of amazing, you know, and then obviously 76, you know, everything changes with the Ramones and the pistols and the clash and stuff like that. So, so the, you know, the world gets turned up on its ear at that point, but, um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of excess in rock at that time, you know? And, um, so if you were a young rebellious kid, 
you're not just rebelling against authority and and rules and things like that, which is which is a good thing to do when you're young. And then, but also, um, you, we were rebelling even against our own rock world. Like we were like, no. So instead of a 20 minute solo rock solo, you know, guitar solo and a rock song with the 20 minute drum break too, you know, we were like, we're going to write a minute and a half song that's so fast and so furious that it will leave you slack jawed and exhausted, you know, after 90 (laughs) seconds, you know, that was kind of the unspoken goal. I like that. I like that. So, uh, wow. So what an upbringing you're in France for two years. You, I guess you come back at some point, um, you moved to Boston in 81 and that's a, that you discovered the scene up there. And then we know you started DYS shortly after that, but how old were you? Why did you move to Boston? So uh, it's 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 really kind of nerdy, but uh, I am you know I wear my nerd uh, my nerd badge with pride. So so yeah, I actually um, read a book when I was a little kid, probably maybe eight or nine. I read a book about Ted Williams, and um, for those who aren't aware of who Ted Williams is, he was um, the last uh, player in baseball to hit four hundred. Um, so he's the, no one has done it since to retire with that as his, you know, as his, you know, as a full-time player who, you know, and he also, by the way, uh, did that despite, uh, leaving the team and going to serve, you know, in the air force, I think, uh, as a pilot and, um, you know, and fought in combat in world war two. Uh, so, so, I mean, here's this guy just talk about doing everything he really did and um came back and the greatest story about Ted Williams is his last game um the, the the manager of the club the skipper said hey do you do you want to just sit out today because you know if, if he went up four times at bat and then struck out all four times i think it may have impacted that 400 right and uh, that 400 av- batting average and so he said if you keep me out i will kill you and like you know <laughs> and you know he wasn't in it for the records he was in it cuz he wanted to play and he loved the game and I always loved that. And I know that sounds weird, but that's one of the reasons why I always kind of rooted for um, Boston Red Sox in sports, you know, uh, as, a, as a young kid. And so, um, you know, and keep in mind at that time, D.C. didn't really have a team, right? We had the Senators for a little while and then, then they moved to Montreal. So uh, there was no baseball team for me um, in D.C. per se. So I was like, huh, huh. And I kind of always liked the Dodgers and the Red Sox. Those are the two teams that I that I kind of followed. Um, and I really liked all teams in baseball still do. I mean, I, I play fantasy baseball and I love watching different weird games that I have no, you know, connection geographically or historically to, you know, like Oakland A's against, you know, the, you know, the Cleveland guardians or whatever, you know, I'm like, I'm good. I'm like, I don't know any of the players, you know, I'm just going to watch the game. Right. It's just great. So, uh, so yeah, so I, that was literally one of the reasons why I looked to go to Boston was, was, uh, this little book, you know, this little story of Ted Williams back in early days. So, and then, uh, you know, I ended up going there and really connecting there as a spark that I had to with it. I, you know, obviously went up to visit it and, um, loved it and think it's a great town still to this day. It's great. I love it. I love, uh, I don't, I'm not there often, but I love visiting the city when, uh, when I can, but, uh, you, you got there. So did you get connected with the local punk scene there? Yeah. So, so early on, like my first week, really, um, you know, all the, again, you talk about the straight edge thing and everything and, uh, the, the first weekend, you know, and everybody else is starting to do their first parties and everything. I, I went into Kenmore square in Boston and, um, it's just there was a bunch of there were not a bunch there were like four or five guys in you know torn jeans and leather jackets uh you know hanging out with various you know strange 
haircuts and, you know, shaved heads or spiky or whatever they had, you know, and I was like, okay, I found, I found my people, you know, so, um, just started talking to them right out, you know, really right off the bat. I was, you know, barely one foot off the, out of the car and I was already in, and we were a very small scene at that time. And, uh, you know, uh, led by SSD control, they were the, they were the real leaders of our scene and, um, fell in with them and, uh, Got into uh, the first, I don't know if it's the first time I saw them play. I can't remember. Anyway, we were at the Rat Skeller with the Rat, famous club in Boston. And early on again, early on in my my Boston days. And uh, we started, there were about eight of us in the audience, maybe 10, I mean, of the of the hardcore kids, right? And then the band. And about eight or 10 of us, you know, that were, you know, part of the crew. And then, you know, a few few fans there, a few or a few other people who maybe would be almost like idle curiosity of, huh, what's this, you know? And we started slamming and somebody knocked over a table because they had the tables pulled up almost to the front of the stage because people still weren't used to that. Like nowadays, you can't imagine that somebody would do that because, you know, uh, pits are notorious for what they are, right? Like that is where there's heavy action in the pit of a club, right? So they're slam dancing and stage diving and every other thing. So but back then it was very new. And uh, so anyway, somebody knocked over a table and before you knew it, you know, the, the, the bouncers were already freaked out and that was all they needed. And uh, I remember feeling, so I got picked up right from behind and, you know, I, I was, you know, probably a, you know, a buck 20 sopping wet. Right. So I was not a, a, uh, you know, a, a fearful, fearful dude by any means. Anyway, so I get picked up in the air and, and, and what did I do? I, I, you know, it was just instinctive. I punched the person who was lifting me up uh, and cause he was trying to choke me, right? He wasn't, it wasn't like he gently picked me up. Like they would grab me. I should have put that in. He was grabbing me by the throat, was lifting me up, trying to kind of choke me. So I punched him. Well, he let go, but he quickly grabbed me again and slammed my head twice into a pillar in the club. Oof. And, and then I got thrown out and I was literally like out in the back alley behind the rat and, and uh, I'm on the ground bleeding with my head kind of profile, right? Like on the ground looking sideways. And then the next guy, uh, his name was JT. He gets tossed out and, and, and he's literally, it was so funny. He's facing me on the ground, like split, you know, not almost <laughs> unconscious on the ground, looking at me. I'm looking at him. Blood is pouring from my head. Blood is pouring from his eye, his, his right above his eye you know, got cut and we're looking at each other like, and, you know, I don't remember what the, you know, I think somebody's like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, and then, uh, Katie, the cleaning lady who is, uh, uh, a longtime friend of mine, um, she came outside and was like, oh boy, you know, you poor, you poor guys. And she kind of helped us, uh, get, uh, get ourselves together. And, uh, we went to actually, I remember going back to, um, back to her apartment and she helped us clean up and gave us, you know, you know, some, some, uh, something to drink. And, uh, I mean, you know, Coca-Cola of course, or something, you know, and then, um, yeah. And then, uh, she had a rat named Sid and a rat named Darby. She had two rats, Sid and Darby, you know, obviously Sid vicious and Darby crash, which I always thought to this day, it was so great to have two rats and name them Sid and Darby. Very, very funny, you know? And, um, so yeah, I just, I remember. And then, you know, to this day, uh, I am thankful and grateful to Katie and think she is awesome. So yeah, those are the kinds of things that'll bond you to someone real quick. Oh, that's like prime time hardcore punk. I mean, we're in Boston. It's the eighties. We're we're getting beaten up. I mean, this is it. This is what it's all about. Yeah, and I should say also one of my memories from that flashback memory there was Jamie Sharapa, who was the bass player for SSD Control. Um, he, I remember him 
uh, trying to take off his base and jump in to try and help me and a, another bouncer grabbing him and throwing him back on stage. So Jamie, a uh, great guy, love him, you know, and, um, I really, I, he probably doesn't even remember doing that, but I sure do. And, uh, it meant a lot to me, you know? So when do you decide to start DYS? How does that happen? Pretty early on. Um, you know, I, um, so there was a record store. It's still there, uh, unless I changed in the last year or so, but, uh, there was a record store called Newberry Comics and, um, that was on Newberry street. Uh, that's why it's called Newberry comics. And they did sell comics and, um, and they, uh, were, they sold comics and indie records. Like if you wanted a punk record, that's where you went. And, uh, and, and, you know, they sold everything from, you know, echo and the Bunnymen singles to, you know, hardcore stuff to, you know, everything, you know? So, so, um, and I remember, um, if you wanted a pin from a band, if you wanted a jam pin, you'd go to Newberry Comics and they would probably have a jam pin, you know, whatever, stuff like that. And it was great. It was so great that that place existed and still exists. So, um, so I went into Newberry Comics. They had a bulletin board. You know, this is, uh, I know it's probably hard for younger folks to even r- realize how hard communications were at that time. You know, there was no internet. So, um, so I put up a little sign that said, you know, I was looking for a band and, um, almost immediately, uh, the next day or that day, I got a message from Jonathan Anastas, who uh, is my lifelong, you know, musical partner and friend and is a fantastic human being. And, and, um, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. And, uh, you know, he had a guitar player who he said was into it. And I had a drummer that I said was into it. And in fact, my drummer really had never played drums before. And his guitar player, uh, friend was more into doing like Van Halen covers and stuff. So it quickly became, you know, <laughs> Jonathan and I, uh, finding some, the right pieces of the puzzle to form a hardcore band, but it was relatively early on. Wow. Just like that. You put up the bulletin and, uh, you find people. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, and the thing that I think is really important to, or kind of cool to remember is how tiny the scene was not just in in Boston, but even in DC, like a very established punk scene with bands like Minor Thread and others, you know, there were, um, DC had some pretty big shows for sure. But if you think about how many people go to a, I don't know, a Madonna concert or um, a Katy Perry concert or, or you know, uh, Taylor Swift or, you know, um, or, you know, pick your, pick your famous huge artist and then think about those numbers in independent music and then think of them even smaller, like the pie gets smaller and smaller and smaller into, you know, punk rock. Then you get even smaller and smaller and smaller and say hardcore, you know, so you are looking at a tiny sliver of that pie of the rock and roll world. And, um, so, you know, it was, it was a very close knit scene. Um, and I still love all those guys and gals and think of them as my, uh, family to this day. That was going to be my question. Like, how big is the scene? How many people? I mean, you know, this is early on in the world of hardcore punk. Like, let's say Minor Threat rolls through town. How many people are going to be at the show? Mm, great question. So at the first Minor Threat show, I think, I, okay, memories, you know, again, Jonathan, if he were here, he has a phenomenal memory. Um, my memory is less of specifics and more of the of the energy and the karma. So I'm more of a, you know, a, a, a I, I view things from the 30,000 foot view and Jonathan can actually bring it back to the, to the microscopic view. So we're actually a good, you know, tandem that way. But, um, I think, uh, at, at minor threat when they played the gallery East, I believe, uh, was, it was crowded certainly, but, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, a couple hundred, few hundred, maybe. 
you know that's, yeah yeah that's got to be a serious clout uh, in in the in the world of punk to have been able to see minor threat have you seen them more than once oh yeah yeah i'd seen them in DC as well. I remember one show I saw them at the 930 Club um, and uh, Ian had lost his voice and he came out with a sign and it said, I have, next sign, lost, next sign, my voice. And they <laughs> went ahead and did their show anyway, you know, him screaming the best he could into the mic. And the coolest thing, you know, talk about community and punk rock was everybody was, to the best that they knew the songs, was singing along to help him. And it was a kind of a magic moment, you know, it was like really like, this is the family, this is the community. This is this is where I want to be. That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, they're like the last band left, I think, who hasn't reunited. So it's still the stuff of legends. So it must have been pretty great to witness that. Yeah, they were uh, they were a special band. You know, at that time, I am very, you know, fortunate to have seen some of those bands and played with, you know, played with the Bad Brains, um, you know, uh, all kinds of wonderful experiences that I had from those early days. So, um, you know. Uh, yeah, the hair is coming in uh, white now, but uh, I, I've got some very good memories to to balance that out. So I'm okay with the trade. Oh yeah, yeah, that's the trade off. If I was uh, 25, I wouldn't have seen any of that. So I'll take I'll take everything you know that's come before. Exactly. Like I'm 41 now, and some bands that have gone on to be legendary, I can be like, oh yeah, uh, my first show they played, and you know there was a, only a couple hundred people there. So I feel like an elder statesman sometimes. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So DYS, uh, we know uh, Brotherhood is a classic straight edge album, and it has that straight ahead hardcore feel. And then uh, the self-titled record went more in like a melodic direction. Like, how did that go over at the time? What is the scene like? Because, and I talk about this all the time on the show, coming up in hardcore in the late 90s into the early 2000s in Philadelphia, and probably, I would say everywhere, let's not just put it on Philadelphia. There was there was like real hardcore and fake hardcore. There was purity tests, like real hardcore was like the the tougher stuff and all the crossover stuff that I was into was fake hardcore and there was divisions and it was all, there was all that going on. What, what was the, the scene like at the time DYS is out, second record is out? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Um, I will tell you that it was kind of a really interesting metamorphosis for the entire Boston scene or not the entire, but a lot of us. So you have to remember, we were all very, very young when we started and mostly, you know, we were playing bar chords. If you're a guitar player or bass player, well, bar chords is for a guitar player. And, you know, everything was do that, do that, do that, do that, do that, you know, and that's great. I mean, it was, it met the energy, it met the need, it met who we were at age 17, 18, 19. But as we, kept going, the musicians among us started to emerge. And, uh, and, and I don't think you have to be a great, you know, perfect musician to be a musician, if that makes sense. Like, I think that, you know, you look at a guy like Ingve Malmsteen in, in, in metal and rock, phenomenal guitar player, just untouchable in terms of his technical talent, but maybe not like doesn't have the heart and soul does well i won't say maybe he doesn't to me his music doesn't speak to me the way hendrix or um maybe eddie van halen um you know or pete townsend you know the way those guys do um who played you know maybe a tenth less skill than and i don't even know that's true but but even if they you know even if they were all equal what hendrix did and what what eddie van halen did and then what pete townsend did you know those guys put so much soul in addition to their technique, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I think that 
you know, when we started in, in the early eighties, you know, the, the goal was the energy, the explosion, the change, the desire for expression, independence, freedom, uh, angst about life, you know, uh, making life better, making the world better. You know, these were, these were things that fueled us. So you didn't necessarily, and that was kind of one of the things about punk all along, you know, is you didn't, it wasn't looking for, you know, you know, exceptionally, you know, whatever musicians you could do it. And you saw the bands emerge that could do that. Right. But, um, even if you could just do three chords, you could form a band and be great maybe. So around the 83, 84 mark in Boston to a man, I would say all of these bands started to morph into more rock and metal. And I would include in that, um, certainly DYS, um, SSD control, um, the FUs had a great rock and roll type record, you know, they started, you know, and, um, uh, Jerry's kids, uh, and all, and, and gangrene, you know, Chris Doherty, fabulous guitar player, you know? So, so we all started getting better and also kind of taking off our own, uh, you know, like when you see, um, the thing with the, what do they call them? The blinders around your eyes. So you can only see straight ahead. Right. So, so our blinders were, were taken off and, and everybody was like, huh, if I knew my fingers like this, you know, that's, I can actually play a lead, you know what I mean? And that started to evolve really. And everybody was, was like, oh my gosh, I, I can do this now. And also I'm not going to, you talked about those, those preconceptions and the division, the visions and the rules and all that. And the, backstabbing that happens in every scene um but uh it was great for our scene because we all kind of morphed um almost you know in the same at least in the same general speed and periods so um by the end boston was known by 85 86 boston was known for um you know for being a rock and roll hard, punk hardcore you know kind of scene and um you know, I mean, heck, SSD Control, an album called How We Rock, you know, and, um, you know, and it was a great album. I, I love SSD Control or SSD as they became. And, you know, and then the second DYS record. So we we were kind of like, hmm, you know, we love Iron Maiden, Priest, Metallica, you know, I'm talking, you know, Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning, Metallica. And, um, and in fact, when Metallica came to play the channel, uh, in, I don't remember what year it was, but it was certainly fairly early on a good chunk of that audience that was there going nuts for them was the Boston hardcore scene. Um, you know, most of us, uh, went to that and this is still with Cliff, Cliff Burton when he was playing bass in Metallica. So I'm very happy and, you know, uh, glad that I got to see him play live as well before he passed. So, um, oh, yeah. So, so in fact, I remember uh, at that time I ended up working for Newberry Comics, right? And I uh, ended up, uh, you know, when, once I had, you know, gotten, I was a dishwasher in college for a while. And then I, um, then I got a job at Newberry Comics because I knew a lot about comic books. So, so anyway, um, I remember telling my, my boss, um, I have to have that day off. And she said, no. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm quitting. I literally said, I'm quitting my job. Um, and, you know, I had no money, no nothing, you know, and I was like, I'm quitting my job. I'm sorry. You know, and she's like, all right, take the day. You know, she's like, all right, you know, so, so, uh, you know, that's how much I loved early Metallica. So we love this stuff a lot. And I think there's always been this very strong connection between hardcore and punk and then uh, metal and rock, you know, and, and so uh, we just started realizing what we loved and started playing what we loved. And certainly we always loved um hardcore always always did always will 
but we realized we could do other things and we just started to expand, you know, you started to uh, come out of the cocoon a little bit and stretch, stretch your, stretch your new butterfly wings, you know? So um, that's what happened. I think uh, I think that's just what everybody goes through, or most people go through when they come up in this scene, because all those bands you named, you know, it's before my time, so I'm not intimately familiar with them. So I just think of, of them as like classic hardcore punk bands. So to hear you say that they went in a more rock and metallic direction, I'm like, wow, like that's what happened to all of the bands I grew up with too. There was a youth crew thing happening, and then you have your quicksands and your rival schools and all the post hardcore stuff, and then emo from that so it's just it's the same thing that happened all over again but with newer bands yeah yeah for sure um that's uh that's a good way of, of putting it in terms of the different it's happened with different waves as well for sure dys comes to an end around 85 and you move back to dc that's right yeah so you move back why did you move back to dc dc college is over yeah college was over but uh more importantly um it was just time um so you know, first of all, there were a lot of people in the hardcore world and punk world that were not pleased that bands like DYS were going in a more rock direction. Um, there were a lot who were, but there were some who were not. And, 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 you know, I think, uh, uh that we had kind of reached the stage where we had to decide, you know, do we want to keep going? And, um, in fact, we, we went down to, uh, meet with, uh, Electra Records, and um and Michael Alago who who was um who signed Metallica actually and we talked to him and he was interested um in fact if you ever get a chance uh, Drew Stone who's a friend of mine is a great director and he he wrote a, a, a he directed a movie called um you know who the f is that guy and um is this guy and it was about Michael Alago so anyway uh but Michael uh, and, and another guy down there um wanted to talk to us and they said hey look we really like you um, you know, what, what direction are you going? We're, we're, we're curious. And we're like, well, we're, we're still trying to figure it out ourselves. And, um, and it, the, I think if we'd kept going and stayed in the metal scene, uh, my life story might've been very different, but, um, I just was, uh, my heart has always been in, in punk rock and in, um, you know, in that world. And it just, it was really hard for me to imagine making a full transition to a different genre. So, uh, you know, we, I remember we all went out for dinner in Kenmore Square, uh, the, at a you know, restaurant that we always used to go to, Charlie's. And um, we were just sitting around. It was the band. We all just said, yeah, let's call it. It was, it was so unofficial and un, uh, undramatic, you know, and uh, it was like, and we just kept on eating, having our meal and talking. And, you know, it was a very natural uh, break. That's rare. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, especially when you're young, because usually you're fighting or someone's not getting along or there's some creative difference. But wow, that that's a rare story that everyone just got along. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I love those guys still. Uh, Andy, Ross, Dave, Jonathan, me, you know, but I will say something interesting to me. Jonathan just pointed out that uh, this is the 40th anniversary of Brotherhood, of the album Brotherhood. So, um, talk about, uh, feeling a little bit, uh, you know, old, duh. Uh, yeah. So 40th and we're going to potentially maybe do some couple of concerts to celebrate that toward the end of the year. We'll see if things work out. I hope they do. It'd be fun. Oh, that would be exciting, huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You did some reunion gigs in, uh, 2010, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. And, um, went to, did, did some couple of festivals in Europe and, um, 
had some great times and it was great to see the guys a different, a little bit different lineup. So, so, um, you know, due to various sundry, you know, availabilities and things like that. And so nothing, again, nothing negative about any, uh, buddy, but, um, we did the, the first big reunion was, um, with, with, um, you know, that was for part of this big reunion show, um, in, um, in, uh, where was it? Revere and, um, Club Lido. And, um, so that was, uh, that was our first big reunion show. And that was great. Jerry's kids played and the FUs and, uh, uh, some other bands. It was, it was fabulous. And, um, it's like old home week, you know, for, for us. And, um, so, so that was like the, Hey, this is still fun and this is still good. And, um, people still, it still resonates for people. So, let's do some more. And then we ended up doing some, some Euro dates and some others. So I uh, played in, played in Boston with the uh, mighty, mighty Boston's uh, for their, um, I forget what it was called. They have a annual thing that they did um, uh, sort of. A, oh, they used to do some fest, right? Yes. Yeah, so it was a regular fest that they did and they asked us to play. So we did. And uh, that was, that was great, you know, and, um, you know, Dickie that, from, uh, Boston's drew the cover of brotherhood, right? That's a, that's a little known fact. It is a little known fact. Thank you for, for knowing that. Yeah, he did. And, uh, I remember, you know, um, seeing that and was like, whoa, you know, dude, you know, that's so, so cool, <laughs> you know, cause I can't even draw a stick figure, you know? So it was like, and you know, uh, yeah, it was just, it was great. So you're in DC. It's somewhere around 1985. We're starting up Dag Nasty. Yes. Yeah, that's right. They were starting Dag Nasty. I wasn't part of it yet. I quickly signed on as a um, as a roadie. Uh, Brian asked me to roadie for them, so I did. And um, I knew Brian from the Minor Threat days, and you know DYS and Minor Threat. You know, had seen each other and or played together. So um, so I knew Brian, and that's also when I first met uh, Bill Stevenson and some others guys when he was in Black Flag. So so as you know, those early days are fairly significant because there were again so few of us that we all kind of met each other and knew each other. And, um, uh, so anyway, yeah, Brian, as soon as I got back to DC, I called Brian. He said, yeah, come on, let's go. Let's And he drove me around in his, uh, I think it was his father's red CRX, Honda CRX. And, um, we listened to a cassette of the demo, the four song demo or whatever it was that, uh, that they had just made. And, um, so I listened to it and loved the music so much. And, you know, he said, Hey, you know, we could use a roadie. And I'm like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. I actually roadied for SSD and other bands in Boston occasionally, you know, and that was more like I wasn't roadieing like a, you know, professional. In fact, I was probably more hindrance than help, but, you know, happy to, <laughs> happy to lift an amp or drive a, drive a vehicle or, or stand guard while somebody's, you know, changing or whatever, you know. And, um, so, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, I was happy to help out the Dag Nasty story. And, um, yeah, it just kind of evolved into this, this thing where they needed me to step in and, I was happy to do it. How does that happen? The the first singer leaves, right? Do they just say, "Hey, do you want to do it?" or do you tell them, "I want to do it"? How does that work? Oh, no, no. They they told me. Um they were basically um they're like come over to so uh, the band used to practice in Colin's dad, Colin the drummer, um in his dad's basement. And um so they they asked me to come over and um and I did and um and they said, yeah, we're, you know, and they, they had a tour scheduled with the Descendants um, imminently. So um, they're like, yeah, you're, you're the singer now. I was like, oh, uh, cool. Um, okay. Yeah. Because uh, I love the music so much. It really spoke to me. And so uh, I was happy to, to do it. And, and um, 
you know, we all bleached our hair, you know, together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was like a, a bonding ritual for Dagnasty, you know. And when you see those early pictures, we all had bleach blonde hair. Uh, so it was pretty funny. And, uh, yeah, so we were a brief uh, – uh, we were an M80 firecracker, if people know what that is. A huge bang, lit the fuse, made the huge bang, uh, ears ringing, and then thank you, good night. That was that was my Dagnasty story. You know, we did we did one of the, you know my favorite albums of my career, and then called it a day for me. Yeah, you have an album out on Discord. I mean, that's got to be huge, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and especially you know, given my absolute love of and respect for. Um, well, Discord in general, and, and then Ian Mackay in particular. You know, he's a, one of the you know true icons of our world. So, yeah, absolutely. Do you work with him at all when you're putting out the record and or recording or anything, or do you have like a lot of interaction with him? So, yeah, Ian and Don produced the record actually. Um, oh. So, so Don Ziantera, who owned um, Inner Ear Recording Studios, uh, which was at that time again in his basement, in his basement downstairs. So um, that's where we recorded the album in Don Zantara's basement, also known as Inner Ear. Uh, and um, yeah, and Ian was there. So um, yeah, we, we, you know, we were definitely working together and, you know, it's a little intimidating uh, to be there with him because at that point, even then, you know, even back then in 1986 or 85 or whenever it was, we recorded that thing. He, he was already, you know, he was Ian Mackay already, right? You know, so it's a little <laughs> intimidating, but in a good way, not that he, you know, did anything but encourage. He was incredibly encouraging and, um, uh, you know, obviously from what you hear on the record, he and Don knocked it out of the park in terms of what they were able to get out of us and, and bring and record onto the tape, you know? Oh, yeah. What's the vibe with the scene at the time? Because, you know, Dag Nasty is more of a melodic hardcore thing. Where does that stand overall in the scene and with what's going on at the time? Did you Do you guys fit in? Are people into it? Is there like other stuff going on? What's the story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, ironically, well, so let me, you know, how I told you kind of all the, the bands in Boston had kind of gone in a more rock and, and metal direction. Well, DC was evolving in its own way. Um, and you listen to some of those bands, 85, 86, 87, uh, obviously Rites of Spring, uh, some other bands, you know, Grey Matter, um, some other, I'm trying to remember who else, but there were a number of bands at that time, Beefeater, but certainly there was a lot of, DC area bands that were sort of evolving in a, in a very different direction, a little more artistic. And so the cool thing I think for Dag Nasty was um, we kind of like before when I was describing how the Boston bands were like, wait a minute, I don't need to only play bar chords. I still can love bar chords, but I can also play a solo. Well, that was kind of like what happened if you listen to Brian Baker's guitar playing in on Can I Say, you hear... Brian Baker unleashed for the first time. And, you know, everybody, I would say all four of us were unleashed at the same time. And that's what made that record so freaking special because everybody had decided to take off their, their, their handcuffs, everybody. And it was the first time for all four of us, I think that we were boom, you know, it was the, again, fire cry. It was like, wow, I, you know, I can sing and scream on in key, right? Like I grew up singing in church choirs and singing in plays and musicals, you know, and guys and dolls and my fair lady and things like that. So I love to sing. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a punk rock singer who can sing and love singing, right? Like I'm going to do it. I'm going to be who I am. I'm answering my inner muse with this music because this music that, that those three guys had created is, is calling me 
in a certain way to spark my spark and to spark my heart and my my soul. And it was the most really great karma that I'd felt of that like pow. And it all happened for all four of us, I think, at that same time. Pow. You know, and uh and and I remember you know, Don was like, you know, wow, God, that's amazing. You know, and he was in love with it. And, and, and Ian, you know, said it was one of the best records that he, you know, could imagine for discord and all these kinds of great positive reinforcements. And, but the, nice. the, the it was so thick, Keith, you could cut it with a knife, the, the, the pow factor, man, it was, if I could bottle that and drink it, you know, I would, you know, um, it was a, it was just an explosion of everybody exploding outward with with focus though right with love and punk rock and hardcore focus but but the pow factor was huge i love that i love that and you did a little bit of touring before you left right i mean how are those shows are people a lot of people coming out to see it do they feel that pow factor as well I think they did i think keep in mind we toured unfortunately before the album had come out um, so, ah. so all these songs were new to people, but I do think that there were, I mean, I can tell you just from, you know, personal anecdotal, whatever, uh, stories that people were coming up and saying, you know, holy crap, you know, like what the hell was that? It was amazing. You know, or, you know, stuff like that, which was, which was really cool to hear, you know, so the, 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 the pow factor was there, I think live to a certain degree, but, uh, certainly, um, the album was, was, uh, you know, what, what you know, blew up in the doors for the band. And, and then unfortunately, you know, timing being timing, um, you know, I decided I wanted to go back to grad school. So, so I did. You went to, uh, did you go to grad school in Israel? I did. Yeah. So I got a, how old are you at that time? Um, I don't know, maybe tw- 23, something like that. Maybe I can't remember, honestly. Um, wow. So you're 23 years old. You have this amazing record out. We've got great opportunities in front of us in the world of music. And you're like, nope, I'm going to go to grad school in Israel. You must have had some serious focus and the ability to look into your future and make some choices in regards to that, because not a common choice for a 23-year-old in your situation. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, I agree. It was, uh, you know, so part of it was financial, right? So I got a, a full ride to go over there and, um, I had no money, you know, and, um, and so, um, I just, it was like, well, you know, this is a shot for me to do this. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, the chance to go, and by the way, I've always loved the Middle East, you know, like I, I remember Lawrence of Arabia, the movie, right. And like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but, um, you know, the, the, the vistas of the the sand and the desert. And of course I lived in Jerusalem, so it really wasn't, you know, that at all. Um, but, um, I did live in the old city of Jerusalem. So there was just incredible history. So I'm a history nerd, you know, and I have a chance to go over to the middle East and, and be there and experience that. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And, um, I really wrestled with it and, and, um, you know, but made the, you know, you make your calls in life and I couldn't have done both or maybe I could have, I don't know, you know, maybe if we'd, talked it through. The original reason I actually left was because I was going to go to NYU. Um, I got a chance to go to NYU to their Middle Eastern school, right? They have a, they have a school there called the Hagop Kevorkian Center for Near Eastern Studies, I believe. And um, I still remember getting into that. And, um, and then I was, that's why I actually originally, you know, told, told the guys I was going to leave. And had we been smarter and less young um, and less impetuous, 
you know, we would have said, oh, wait, you're just going to New York. That's like a five hour drive to DC. (laughs) Sure. We'll just practice on the weekends and, you know, whatever, you know, it's a three hour train ride or a five hour drive. Like, let's just, of course we're going to keep going. Like, but instead it was, you know, me saying, guys, I'm going to New York. I have to quit. And, you know, them getting really, you know, upset and angry and, and rather than us thinking it through in hindsight, I often wonder if we'd actually thought it through. And then, uh, I'd, I'd applied and keep in mind, all of these applications had been done long before I even joined the band. Right. So, so I had no idea that it was even going to come in when I joined the band, but, uh, they did. And then, um, you know, uh, the, the Israel thing came along and I'm like, wow, so I, the whole reason I was going to go to NYU was to learn about the Middle East and, and and learn about history and cool stuff, right? And I was like, now I have a chance to actually go, you know, to there. And and how often do you ever get that chance in life? So you know, um, you know, again, growing up with my dad, you know, living in France for a couple of years and just having that as my kind of background, I just you know that was my muse, right, at that time. So that's what that's where I followed my muse. Did uh, you talk to the band after you left, or were they mad at you for a while? What was the vibe? Nah, yeah, it was it was a little rough, right? It was a little rough. I think we, um, you know, I ended up coming back and you know leaving Israel to join all actually, and um, came back and so you left grad school to join all well i finished my one year there and i had to decide whether i was going to stay and actually you know finish and get a full full de- full you know graduate degree there or or head back to the states and while i was there bill stevenson called me uh several times actually and this is when it was not cheap to call uh, internationally like that and he called me several times and we talked and talked about his vision for all you know go for all and i was like you know what again, like, this is where I'm being called. I felt like, you know, I'm this, this guy, I connect with him. I believe his vision. That's wild. How does he get your phone number in Israel? He got it from Mike Gitter, who did a fanzine called Triple X, XXX fanzine out of Boston. Mike and I had stayed in touch and Mike, I think said, Hey, uh, you know, Bill Stevenson wants to talk to you. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, you know, here's, here's the number. So you're in Israel on the phone with Bill Stevenson multiple times. And he's like, all right, we know Milo left and went to college and Bill is talking to you about all. And he's like, we want you to come sing for this band. Yeah. Yeah. And it was in a way, a, a little bit of a um, 2.0 of what, you know, it happened with Dag where, you know, Bill Bill called up and said, yeah, we're forming a new band called All and you're the singer. It's like, oh, all right. You know, and I was like, wow. it wasn't even a question, but he knew that I like, he knew me better than I knew myself probably. And, um, you know, so I, and, you know, I had enormous respect for him, which has only grown over many years um, as a as a songwriter and musician. Uh, you know, so you know, even then he was like the greatest drummer in the world. You know, and he became, of course, the greatest drummer in the world probably today. You know, so do you feel like the luckiest guy in the world? I mean, you moved to Boston and formed DYS, who has a good run. You have a great run with Dag Nasty. You're like, oh, I'm going to go to grad school. Bill Stevenson calls you up and it's like, hey, we need you for this band. Yeah, very, very fortunate. And, you know, I mean, when when you get these moments in life, um, there's a lot of reasons to say no to different things. But uh, there should always be a what if factor in life, you know, and it doesn't mean you should always do everything right. And there's a lot of bad choices people can make and do make and we all have made. But, um, you know, when you get a moment like that, um, yeah, you you got to be nuts not to not to seize the day carpe diem you know so what happens you're in israel what do you go meet up with them in los angeles what happens 
Yeah, yeah. I flew out there. I, I, I got back to Jersey, uh, stayed with my girlfriend for a little while. Um, you know, uh, leaving Israel, stayed, stayed at, at uh, her house and got a job. Uh, I still remember selling my, um, my record collection at a record store in New Jersey. I can't remember which one it was, but it was sort of a good, I, I liked the dude who owned it. And it was, so they sold a lot of indie stuff and punk stuff. And I remember word got out, like, you know, Dave Smalley sold his record collection and kids were like coming from all over Jersey and Philly and, you know, Pennsylvania <laughs> and everything. Cause they figured the, even at that point, the old dog, you know, so the old dog probably had some good stuff. So they, you know, I did. And, um, you know, so, uh, yeah. So then I just hopped on a plane and got off. They picked me up at the airport and, uh, in the gray, uh, descendants van and uh, we went and had Alfredo's and went to practice. Just like that. Just like that. Go for all. How was it? Was it scary? I mean, I know you've had experience and you've done this before, but did you did you fit right in? Like, what was what was it like? Yeah, I think at that point, you know, having having had two bands under my belt and a little bit of touring and um, you know a fair amount of, uh, I guess I don't know what the word is, maybe confidence because I'd re- I'd recorded already a little bit, you know, so mm-hmm. I felt like. Uh, I, I felt like I really liked these guys as musicians and, um, and, uh, I liked them as people after we got to know each other better. And, um, and then the songwriting, right. It was all about the songwriters, all about the music. And we lived as uh, musicians, um, you know, uh, for the first time in my life, full time. Right. And, um, you know, to, you know, sometimes you, you know, you ate one meal a day and, you know, you lived in the back of an office space, um, all these kinds of things. But, uh, we, we were making some really unique songs and music and you really, uh, you know, all credit to, to Carl and Stefan and Bill, you know, who were pioneers and, um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, hopefully I contributed, you know, uh, to that as well. And, you know, I had made some two, two records that I'm really proud of and very unique records for, especially for the time, but even, even now today, I think. Absolutely. So uh, how was it, uh, with audiences at that time? I mean, obviously now people love all, and I think it's, uh, I think it's grown in appreciation for people over the years, but what's it like at the time? Is it, is it difficult with you stepping in or are people generally receptive to it? Yeah, I think so. I think they were, I think there was, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of good reactions. I think, yeah, of course there were some people who just wanted to hear Descendants songs. But one of the things I think that we did right was, um, I had seen, you know, uh, Peter Cortner come in after me as the singer for DAG and, and people had gotten used to hearing the song from the singer of Dag Nasty, which was, you know, on Can I Say, which was me. And then, you know, every singer is different, right? And so, uh, so, so people wanted to hear the way they heard it, you know, on the record. That's what they're used to hearing. Like if you go to see, um, I don't know, uh, name your band, you know, Dead Kennedys, you know, it has to be Jello, right? Like there can't be, it's hard to get another singer. People still want to hear Jello. That's why it's hard for them to tour, but they've managed to pull it off and get good singers. So don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that, you know, there are certain sounds that you just associate with the band, you know, and, um, so singers are the hardest ones to replace, not necessarily because we're so great or, or whatever. It's more like just the, you get associated with that sound. Right. And so, so when I joined uh, all, one of the things I asked Billy to do was like, say, Hey, you know, I don't want to be, cause I, I, you know, you gotta be crazy not to know that Milo is a great singer and distinctive, very distinctive. But, you know, the old expression, to thine own self, be true, right? And I knew that I'm a hardcore singer. I'm a melodic hardcore singer. I am, you know, I'm not Milo and Milo's not, uh, you know, Milo's not Dave Smalley and Dave Smalley's not Milo. So I didn't want to try and be 
somebody I wasn't. And so I said, let's create something from the ground up. And uh, let's, you know, we did a couple of Descendant songs as um, encores sometimes, and that was it. We were our own thing. We were going for all. So that's what we did. I think that's the way to go. It forces people to accept the new situation. It establishes you as what you are, right? And people aren't stuck on the past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you can you can never really match like I mean the joy and beauty of and 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 really uh pain really sometimes for for the descendants, you know. Um, you know, songs about broken hearts and, you know, things like that. I mean, those those are and being in love with a girl who doesn't, re- you know, unrequited love or whatever, you know. So so they they have a certain element to them that is that is distinctly them and that that combination and so i love that all had our own element to us and um you know i think we we have our own sound you know and you know whoage or just perfect or um you know those kinds of songs um you know sex in the way or pretty little girl or you know um you know wishing well all these songs that are that are their own songs they definitely sound like all absolutely so you're in the band until 1989, and you left to go to grad school again. So not really. No, that that's. I mean, I I really left to because I was kind of um, I was fried on touring. Um, I'd never toured that much before, and uh, I you know you, I, I was on the road for about nine months out of one year, and um, and that's playing a lot, like five six nights a week, and. Um, you know, and it's, you know, it, it, those guys had already had, I, I make the analogy sometimes those guys already had their calluses built up. So when you start to play guitar, your fingers get all cut and bloody, right? And it takes a while for you to keep, you got to keep playing so that you'll get calluses on your fingers. Like my fingers are, you know, permanently callous now, right? Cause I've been playing guitar for so long, but, but it took a while. And like for when I started playing guitar live for the first time in Down by Law, I would play and, you know, my fingers would be bleeding during the show. Like I would look down and see blood uh, dripping down on my guitars. And, um, but after a while, the calluses were there, you know, and so my road calluses weren't there yet. That's my analogy. And so, um, I was just, I was tired, you know, and I just, I wanted, you know, I wanted a break and, um, I just didn't want to you know, I wanted to take a, a pretty serious break, you know, and so, um, you know, but that's not really going for all. I needed a pause from my quest for all, you know, cause I needed to take a breath. And, um, so I just said it was time to, time to head out. So, um, but, you know, I think we were, we were still, you know, all good friends and everything like that. Uh, you know, it was, it was not a bad thing. That's good. I was going to say, those guys must hate college. Milo leaves for college. You supposedly leave for college again, but that's not yeah. exactly what Well, happened. I joined, I, w- I did go back to, so I went, I went back, uh, I, I stayed out in Cali and, and um, LA and, and did go back to, uh, did go back to college. Yeah. And you ended up starting down by law pretty soon after you leave all. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I just had a few songs that I wrote, you know, you don't stop being a musician if you're a musician. So um, I, I was playing and wrote to, uh, Wrote the song "Down the Drain" and "Right or Wrong." Don't remember. Maybe "American Dream." Um, those are three songs, I think. And uh, trying to remember "Vision." Maybe it was another one. So maybe those th- four songs or four of the early ones. And then, um, yeah, just called up my friends in Chemical People, who we had toured with in all quite a bit, and who I loved as people and, and musicians, and said, "Hey, you guys, can we just? I want to see how these songs sound with a, you know." instead of just me recording onto a Tascam four four track cassette in my living room, you know, of my one bedroom apartment. Let's, 
let's see how it sounds with a real band, you know? So, and they were totally cool with that. So I went over and, uh, we, we started playing and, you know, you get lucky in life and, um, it was luck that, uh, it just clicked right away. I was like, Oh, that sounded really good, you know? And then, damn, that sounded really good too, you know? And so, you know, we were, we were just, uh, off to the races before we even knew it. And, the original goal was just to do some fun jamming and then it ended up, Hey, maybe we should record some stuff. And then it ended up, you know, Brett Kerwitz coming to see us at the uh, coconut teaser uh, in LA and saying, you guys are great. I want to sign you come out to my Volvo, you know? And, and so, you know, and talking to him and, and uh, so it ended up just, uh, you know, there was a certain uh, energy and karma with that. That was, that was pretty, again, pretty, uh, pretty mind blowing. Did you feel weird at all? Because you leave all, right? You want to settle down and maybe not tour as much. And then you end up in this band very soon after and signed to Epitaph Records. Yeah. I mean, it, but it, it all happened so fast. And you got to remember, I wasn't at that time thinking anything was going to happen. So it all kind of happened like, you know, uh, you know, sort of a look to your left, look to your right. And, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know, I, I started out over here and now I'm over here, but I didn't even know I did that. Like, I didn't even know I took those three steps forward, you know? And, um, so, and then of course, you know, the whole idea was, uh, you know, never to be a touring band. And now of course, down by us, you know, been fortunate enough to, to tour all over the, the planet. We're very lucky. When all the band saw you form down by law, were they like, Hey, this guy said he wanted a break and now he's in a new band. What's the deal? Was there anything like that? No, because there actually was a break, right? It didn't just happen like the next day or anything, you know, it, it happened with time, you know, that I left and, you know, then moved out to LA. And remember I was kind of living with the band. So I had to actually find a place and lived, uh, you know, shacked up with a buddy for a while and then found a you know, shared an apartment with a stranger that I met through the equivalent of Craigslist at the time in LA, like the LA weekly, you know, classifieds, I believe it was. And anyway, that kind of thing. And then, you know, getting into school, you know, all that stuff. So it all kind of, um, uh, it all kind of took a little bit of time. It wasn't, wasn't instantaneous. So I, I had the break I needed. I see. Is it weird when you're still living with all, like, do they come home and you're still there and it's like, oh, hi. And you're, you have to like find a new place to live. No. So, so we finished the tour. We, I decided, I told Billy and the guys when I was on tour with them and, um, it's actually outside of a laundromat. We were all doing laundry and, um, and then, uh, then I came, we all, we, I mean, of course I finished the tour. I didn't leave anybody in the lurch or anything. And then, you know, no, it was very, it was cool. Everybody, you know, again, maybe you, you mentioned Milo had left, so they're, you know, like got it, you know? you know, these, these, these things happen and people are people and, um, you know, and people have different life paths, right? Different, different, uh, flow and the universe flows people in different ways at different times. And, um, we're not, we're not robots in life. We, we have, uh, moments of change, moments of contemplation that take us in different directions. And, um, so we have to, uh, I think sort of follow your muse, whatever your muse is and listen to the universe calling you, you know, um, you know, Hendrix in the wind cries, Mary, <laughs> you know, and just yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like you gotta, you yeah. gotta listen to that wind. I think, uh, I think everyone just matured much faster than me because I got into bands later. Uh, I held resentments for a long time, still do sometimes. So I, I think everyone just had experiences earlier than me and maybe matured faster than I did, which is okay. That's okay. Yeah. Again, you're you're on you're on your own path, right, brother? So and everybody has that. And there is no right path except for your path. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm learning. So down by law, we go strong till about two thousand three. 
Yeah, that sounds about right. I you probably know it better than I do. I I, I don't remember the years as much, um, but yeah, we definitely had some shining moments and got got to, to play places uh, that I never thought of and make some records that I am very very uh, still you know very pleased with and in love with and and have made a difference for a lot of people, which is you know ultimately what art is about, right? You have to express yourself as an artist, and then uh, if it if it actually you know creates a bang or a pow for somebody that's that's the that's the most joyous feeling in the world so you know yeah all, all the bands had, had had made a pow moment or two on vinyl and um or cd or whatever the you know platform and so yeah we we were very very fortunate and then um yeah it was just uh you know kind of just had a had a sort of a moment of where it kind of stopped but it never really stopped and sam williams who is Again, you talk about being lucky. I was extraordinarily lucky to um, to be Sam Williams' musical partner. Uh, he's uh, one of the greatest guitar players. Um, he's he's you know, one of the greatest guitar players easily in punk rock. But the the interesting thing is that he's also one of the greatest guitar players in rock. Um, this is a guy who grew up skipping school so he could stay home and play guitar to Eddie Van Halen records, you know? And, and so like, just, it, it's a phenomenal guitar player. And, um, and, and not just, again, like I said earlier, not just the, the skill set, which was ridiculously huge, but the, uh, the heart and the karma and the, the joy, um, goes with that. I mean, Sam will talk to you about hardcore records the same way you and I will all day long. You know, he could have gone any number of directions, with his talent. And he, he just loved punk rock. He loved rock and roll, but he also loved his heart was in punk rock and hardcore. And so, um, you know, he, he has remained true to that. And I'm so lucky and honored to still call him, you know, my dear friend and, and musical partner. So it's been, been very, it's been a great ride still going. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down by Laws is still together, right? You still, That's correct. You still yeah. do stuff. Yeah, yeah. we put out uh, we put out a couple of I think quite good albums in the last few years. One is called All In, uh, and the other is called um, uh, Lonely Town. That was the most recent one. Uh, Lonely Town has some great songs on it. Sam was just like, I mean, he's a great songwriter, and and Sam wrote you know whatever high percentage of the songs on the record, and the percentage that I wrote, he made better. You know, and um, so, but yeah, he wrote some phenomenal songs and um, he just brings out the best in me as a singer. So um, yeah, I encourage everybody to go check out the album Lonely Town. And we want to talk about Don't Sleep as well. Yeah, for sure. We've got a new album, Sea Change, coming out June 2nd on End Hits. And that'll be out by the time everyone hears this. So make sure you give that a listen. And there's two singles out now, Promise Made and Dead on the Inside, which are great. So, Dave, tell us about this band. How does it start? When does it start? How do we decide to start a new band, right? You've got so many classic bands in your roster. Like, Tell us about the beginning of Don't Sleep. How does it all come together? Sure, yeah, great question. So it's really cool. One of the things I love about Don't Sleep is this is a band of five guys who formed with the common bond of a strong love of hardcore. That was the foundation upon which this band came together and like, like no other band I've ever been. Yeah. Obviously all of us came up in the early days. Like we were such a, like I said, the scenes were so much smaller. Like, yes, you loved what you did and you loved hardcore and you loved punk, but, but like this band don't sleep is a band of guys who grew up in hardcore. Right. And, and so, um, you know, the, they're very close, you know, they're in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 
and um and they obviously got to see and grow up with you know all the great new york hardcore bands and you know sick of it all um you know uh, youth of today um uh shelter um agnostic front uh you know the great bands and there are many of them that are new york you know has this spark to it you know that and a lot of those guys are you know h2o you know like these are all guys that i know now uh, as friends many of them and and am absolutely in love with their bands and what they do musically so the this band these guys all just loved that stuff it was like the, the the stuff of their dna they breathed it they live it and so but they were in a band ironically enough that was called very american and they they uh had a british singer you know it's very funny and um they um uh, they 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 sounded nothing like hardcore they were actually an almost an alt alternative style band uh almost like a uh pop band uh almost like I don't want to say REM meets Elvis Costello or something. I don't know how to describe them. They're really great. So, so I uh, talk about the internet and and the uh, the way things have changed from me going in 1981 to Newberry Comics and putting up a you know a, a crudely drawn flyer saying, "Hey, I'm looking for a band." Right? Like that was that was then. The now was Garrett Rothman, who is our bass player. He sends me a, a message over social media and he says, "Hey." Um, you know, you don't know us. Uh, we're in a band. We all love everything you've done with Down by Law and All and, and Dag Nasty and DYS. And we, we just would really be happy in, if you would just give our album a listen. We, we thought you might dig it. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, sure. I wrote back. Yeah, go ahead. Send it. So he sent it. By the halfway through the first song, I knew these guys were something special. And, and then, you know, halfway through the second song, I'm like, these guys are great. And halfway through the the third song, I'm like, okay, I got to meet these guys or see them or something because, and you know, and I wrote back a very, it was like four songs, I think. And, you know, it, it was just one of these things where I was moved, moved by what they did. And, and we, uh, you know, we started conver- conversing, you know, electronically. And then of course, you know, you go to a phone call and then blah, blah, blah. Right. And, um, uh, it was just, it was super cool. And, um, you know, and, and we just clicked as friends right away. And I went up to, um, I went up to Harrisburg to, to do a solo show and they opened for me with their band, the very Americans. And then they, uh, they played the encore with me that we did a couple of Dag Nasty songs. And there was just karma right there. It dripped karma that, that moment. And, you know, I mentioned my friend, Kenny Brown earlier, um, who passed away with that tattoo artist. And Kenny was in the audience that time. I remember very well. And he, you know, he was like, came up, brother, that was freaking great. You know? And like, <laughs> you know, so, so there was something there right away. And, uh, yeah. So we, we just, uh, we were, again, you know, you, you kind of learn not to, um, not to pass those things up. So I, I, uh, didn't pass it up. So, so what happened? Did those guys and you team up and that's how don't sleep came together? Yeah. And then they, we, we kept doing a few more shows and eventually I did some solo shows with them playing as, as the, the band, right. It was me with a band with, which was them. And, um, and then finally they, they, uh, they actually said, Hey, we wrote some songs for you and they sent it to me and I was, this is one time, you know, you'll laugh, you know, I was like, I heard it and I don't even know if these guys know the story, but when I first heard the songs they wrote, I was like, God damn it. This is really good. <laughs> Son of a bitch, you know? And cause I was really hoping that it wasn't going to be good and, and that I'd be able to gracefully, you know, decline. Right. And, uh, instead it was, uh, it was like, damn, 
oh, this is really good. You know, was like, so it was ironic, you know, I'm saying it with a smile on my face, you know? So yeah, it was, it was really good. They wrote some great songs. And um, so I went and tracked it up in Harrisburg and uh, the, the, then it started growing and spiraling. And eventually we made uh we got a recording, we made our own independent stuff come out and then, um, uh, you know, on, on uh, Cortex uh, 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 Unity Worldwide, uh, and then we um, we uh, put out some singles and things, and then did a tour with Shelter, and then we did it. We made an album for um, Victory, which got bought out, and then uh, but uh, the the owner of that Victory uh, went ahead and started his own label called Mission Two Entertainment, and um, put out uh, put out some cool stuff, including Turn the Tide by Don't Sleep, and then uh, I'm really proud of that record. I think it came out smoking. And then um, at the time that we recorded that album, we recorded an extra nine songs that we knew were going to be the second album. It was very cool because we knew we knew which songs we wanted for the first album. We knew which songs we wanted for the second album. So for fans of the band, there's going to be a lot of continuity of sound and energy and karma from the first album, which, you know, you always hear that term, the sophomore curse, and we won't have that with this album. In fact, I just listened to it today to prepare for, for, for the art discussion right now. And, um, I was like, you know, whoa, this thing, you know, cause you don't, you know, normally you don't listen to yourself, right? I mean, you can, but, but that's sort of unusual. You know, you, you make the music you make and put it out in the world and hopefully create power and joy, right? That's the goal. Um, but, um, but in this case, I was like, I better, you know, get refreshed, you know, like I, you know, because we recorded these now a couple of years ago, right? Um, so, so, uh, so, yeah, let me, let me, let me do this. And so listening, I was like, whoa, and I was like, dang, you know, and like, ooh, I love that, ooh, that harmony, and damn, Tom's playing amazing guitar there, you know, Jim's the best drummer in hardcore, you know, like it was just going on and on, yeah. You know? <laughs> I was like listening to it with with fresh ears, right? And and it really is a powerful freaking record, I think, and. Um, you know, all kudos to the guys and to the producers, um, you know, Carson and Grant and then, um, you know, and, and Matt Holmes and also Brian McTurnan and um, Walter Schreifels, who also contributed to some of the vocal sessions and the overdubs. So um, there's a lot of heavy hitters on this record. And I encourage everybody to go check it out because this band is is just the real thing. It's It's hardcore, you know, 2023 style. So you're going to, I hope you're going to love it. Wow. So guest spots from Brian and Walter too. Yeah. Not really guest spots as much as they helped uh, track some of my vocals and guitar overdubs and bass overdubs. So they, uh, so, they, uh, helped, they were producing, they were in a producer role. Guest producers, not guest spots. Correct. Yeah. Well, they're great to have their fingerprints on it too, I bet, right? Oh yeah. And they're both, you know, phenomenal uh, musicians and interestingly, it doesn't always translate, but phenomenal producers too, like Brian McTernan's done some, you know, insanely successful and good stuff. And then uh, Walter is just an artist, right? He's an artist. And, and, and I would, you know, unhesitatingly use the word brilliant for both of those guys. And then Carson and Grant, who, who were the producers of the album, um, did a phenomenal job and tracked, you know, got the best performances out of, uh, certainly out of the, the band side. So, yeah. Great. Amazing. I'm looking forward to hearing the whole record. And you know what? I listen to my own music, not as much anymore because the stuff I've put out at this point is pretty old. But when it first gets recorded and comes out, like 
I, yeah, I listened to it and I enjoyed. I think you should. And you should. I, I yeah. absolutely love that. Um, like I said, I did the same thing just today. Listen to it, like, whoa, you know, this is good. And you have to love what you do, right? I mean, like, uh, the, what ultimately matters as an artist, and you know, you as a musician, right? What ultimately, matters is did you create? Is it from from your heart, from your soul? You know, from your from your inner rage, from your inner, you know, karma of of whatever moves you. You know, that's it's got to start from you. You are the bullseye of that of that, you know, dartboard, right? And if it doesn't, you're doing something wrong. If you don't love what you did, then you're doing something wrong. I remember hearing an interview with Glenn Danzig once and somebody asked him, what are you listening to these days? And, and he said, oh, mostly my own stuff. And I was like, at the time, you know, young me was like, wow, what a huge ego, right? And then afterwards I was thinking about it more. And I was like, actually, that's brilliant, you know, because he was, um, First of all, he's being honest, which is, you know, punk rock is supposed to be about that. And then, but also, you know, he was, he loved what he did, you know, and, you know, think of the boldness of Danzig in Misfits and then transitioning over to Danzig. So, well, to Sam, to Sam Hain, and then, you know, going into his solo, you know, stuff and mother and all those kinds of hits. So like, whoa, you know, that's some bold freaking moves right there. And, um, you know, more power to him. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, when I would hear musicians say that they don't really listen to music or they're listening to themselves, I would always be like, eh, that's dumb. Like that's, that's egotistical, but I get it now because you just don't have as much time if you're in it, if it's what you're doing, like this podcast is full time. I'm in a band again. I don't have as much time to listen to music, but, uh, I get enough. Good, good. That's great to hear. Yes. So, uh, I like the idea that uh, these other songs were recorded that at the same time as Turn the Tide, too. It's like this cool time capsule that we'll get to hear now. Yeah, I think so. And it really swings. And uh, Turn the Tide, was I was also really in love with that record. Um, there's a song um, um, called The Wreckage, which is a, you know, a reggae, dark reggae kind of song, because I'm very motivated by reggae. Uh, and uh, so, so I, I kind of, you know, that song was a real... It was actually a struggle to get everybody on board to think about it in new terms and, you know, break free from that, you know, again, break those handcuffs of, of our, of our self-imposedness and we did it and, um, yeah, it came out, came out really nice. What do you do in terms of career and how do you balance that with the musical life? Because you've never stopped. I mean, Dag Nasty, we know has gotten back together and done great things. DYS reunion down by laws continued through the years. We have the new band now. What do you do? Uh, you went to grad school, lots of college. So I'm curious what you do for your career and how you balance that with uh, the lush musical life that you live. In. Uh, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I try and, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I do writing when I can um, and, uh, and, and try and, you know, uh, do my best to be creative, uh, you know, through music and, and, you know, kind of, kind of writing when I can and, 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 you know, uh, just, just kind of, doing life and trying to survive and keep my head above water and also just kind of mostly really to me at this point in my career in life i'm i'm really focused on on this idea of positive energy and what you inject into the world that's that's my that's my motivating um you know that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and it always has been you know i'm, I'm kind of known as a hopefully as a positive person and um and, you know, but I, I've really, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy, Keith, a uh, writer and sort of a guru, I guess you could call him, uh, named Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E. Yes. So yeah, I don't know if you, have you had a chance to read any of his works or? 
No, but I know the name. Yeah. So I encourage uh, you to, he wrote, he's written, you know, multiple you know things. He's, he's very, uh, fairly prolific, but um, he wrote a book called The Power of Now. And then the book that I've just finished is called uh, A New Earth. And these books have been fairly transformational for me. Uh, they, they incorporate elements of, of, you know, Hinduism, Christianity, uh, Islam, Judaism, you know, um, Buddhism, and um, sort of, I'm going to poorly express it, but just to give you an idea, and I know we're coming up on our time when we have to, you know, wrap up here. But uh, so the idea of the power of now, which was his first huge book and the successor was, was a new earth, which is actually, I, I connected more with a new earth actually even, but the idea is that, and I kind of talked about this a little bit, you know, how much of our present are we actually in the moment and, and how much of the present are you, me, everybody in that moment, or how much are we worried about the future or regretting the past and, or living in the past? Like, let's just say the guy who says, Hey, I was captain of the football team, you know, in high school. And he never kind of lets go of that. That's defining his present almost for, you know, looking back for the whole rest of his life potentially. And, you know, we all have met folks like that and that's okay. You know, everybody again has their own path, but, but how much of the present do we, do we lose by regrets of the past or living in the past and then, and or fear of the future? And how much do we let that fear of the future or resentments from the past color what we do in the now? And the answer is usually quite a bit. And so the power of now is the idea of, of becoming present with a capital P and conscious with a capital C. And what does that mean? That means that you are letting go of the ego. And by ego, it doesn't necessarily only mean egomaniac, somebody who thinks they're so great and only talks about themselves or anything like that. But it also means you're letting go of the word I a little bit. Um, and so um, I'm trying to um, you know, endorse that, like to be in the moment, like to just sometimes when I'm walking my dog, you know, I've you know, everybody who has a dog, you know, you take your dog out for a walk, right? That's like what you do um, as, a, as a dog owner. But you, how often do you just stop with your dog? Just stop, listen to the wind, listen to the cars go by, listen to the sound of voices, listen to the birds and just stop and freeze and just let that close your eyes. Hear the dog panting maybe, um, you know, hear a squirrel chattering or running through the branches. You know, how often do we do that? And how often are we in the moment? Or like I used to do more, are you on your cell phone while you're walking the dog, you know, thinking about what you're going to do, you know, uh, next week or whatever, you know, and you've, you never did notice that the leaves change colors and you never did notice that the wind cries Mary, you know? And so, you know, it's this thing where it's kind of revolutionary, but it, you know, you become, and I use this word with caution, but you know, enlightened in a way. And I'm not there yet. I'm not, I would not call myself that. In fact, I think if you do call yourself that, you aren't. But I would say that you strive to be, you know, conscious and you strive to be present and you strive to be less fearful of the future and less stuck in the past. And um, it's a side of a really liberating, really cool thing. And it's a philosophy. It's a, it's not really a religion. It's just a philosophy almost. And um, it's something very karmic and it has definitely impacted me. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be sort of having had those moments of, 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 you know, light bulbs going off above my own head and trying to share that. Um, and, and I kind of feel like that's one of the things now that I am meant to do is have a conversation like this with you and your audience and, 
tell them to try and consider to read these books and try, sort of even beyond those to also just really enjoy every day and be aware that that universe binds us all together. You are part of your brother and sister and every other gender out there. You are part of a human family. And oh, by the way, that family is part of the earth. And oh, by the way, that earth is part of a solar system, one of many. And, you know, all of that, you are tied to this entire beautiful, never ending, incredible universe that flows through you right now. And so I know it sounds like some maybe hocus pocus to some people, but uh, it's this really cool thing that just like kind of, again, you know, breaking those handcuffs off and like thinking and seeing things in a different way. And that's, it's very important to me right now. So I hope that uh, you don't mind me uh, waxing philosophic for a second there. Thanks. No, in fact, let's keep going because <laughs> this is, uh, I'm into a lot of this stuff now because uh, I got into recovery a number of years ago because, you know, I was on the wrong path for a long time. And a lot of what you're talking about is what they teach you in my particular brand of recovery. So I try to stay focused and present and in the moment. And I can be very, very hard on myself, very, very down on myself and beat myself up a lot and always look at what other people have rather than what I have. And this is something I didn't even realize until recently, just how deep it goes. So when I get upset at myself or when I think everybody hates me for no reason or when I'm looking at what the other guy has and saying, why him? Why not me? I can stop and say, look at everything you've accomplished over the last few years. You're doing everything you want to do now. You've done everything you wanted to do in one form or another uh, since you turned your life around. Be happy with what you have. Also, also, uh, I find great joy in giving back and helping others because that takes me out of my own head and and helps me put the positive focus somewhere else. Yeah. So it's really interesting. You know, you talk about like seeing somebody else having something and wondering why. And I've exactly been there too. We all have if we're honest and human, right? And we all are a human, that is. And so, um, you know, uh, but what's really interesting is, you know, every thing will rust. Every mountain will fall. Every, you know, house will not be there. You know, you think you live in an apartment or a house that's yours? Not so much. That apartment and house or whatever it is, is not forever. You know, um, look at, at the ancient civilizations, you know, that we talk about Rome, Greece, uh, whatever, um, in Israel, certainly, you know, or anywhere where there's great history and great civilizations that have come and gone man, none of those things, like it's archaeological ruins now. Um, so, so those people thought the same as we do now, you know, this is forever. This is so, so think of yourself instead, we should, and anyway, and I'm trying to myself is, Hey, we are, what really matters is feeling and being and conscious and the universe flowing through you. You know, these are feelings of true freedom. And that's where you're going after your shell, your body, your carrier, it, when it goes away, whatever age that is, and it, and it will, you know, then your spirit is either coming back in another form, in another shell, if you haven't reached enlightenment yet, or it's going to become one of the universe. And either of those is, is pretty cool. So uh, realize that, and that, that helps the, the momentary frustrations and things not um, hurt so much. Or maybe at all. I love it. I'm I'm totally on board with you with this, 100%. So, Dave, in the last couple of minutes here, let's tell people what you've got coming up. We know we have a sea change out June 2nd on End Hits, so we want everybody to listen to that, right? 
Oh yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I'm honest enough with myself as a musician and, and with my fans and friends and your audience to tell you, I would not recommend it if I didn't think it was, you know, on fire. And I think it's on fire. I really do. Awesome. Uh, uh, tour dates coming up. Can we get, can we get out there and see you? Uh, currently I think we're looking at a fall tour, uh, either U S and or Europe. Um, hopefully both. So that's the, that's the story. It'll be fall. Uh, we'll hit the road here sometime. You know, we got hit hard by, by the pandemic, you know, nothing compared to people losing their lives, um, which was the, you know, the, the true thing that mattered. But of course it changed the world uh, for everybody, whether or not uh, they experienced loss. And so for the music community, we all haven't been able to tour for a long time. And now I'm grateful that they, you know, that they've beat this thing largely and that, you know, the world can, lives can be saved and people can get back to, enjoying uh art and music and creativity and joy so that's that's what we're trying to do and that's what we're going to try and do in the fall excellent anything else we want to announce a surprise all gig a surprise dag nasty record perhaps that dys reunion show you were talking about yeah no i don't have uh anything too much except i also want to give a shout out to my brothers in um in spain um who are we're in a band called dave smalley and the bandoleros and uh, the bandoleros are amazing musicians and great guys they we recorded a few things and a couple uh eps and, and an album called join the outsiders and uh, that was a lot of fun to do and i think it's got a certain joy to it that i really thought was unique so I, I if you ever get a chance to check that out and we might do something together too in the fall or whenever with them as well if if we can excellent excellent well dave I tell guests they've done it all a lot, but you've really done it all, Dave. You've really done it all. So if you ever happen to feel down, you can look back on all the bands and everything and say, hey, I have lived one hell of a life. Uh, So I just want to thank you for all your contributions and thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Keith, thank you so much. It really means a lot to hear you say that. I really, truly, uh, genuinely appreciate that. And uh, this has been a really enjoyable conversation, I hope, for for your listeners as well. And, um, you know... uh, Really just uh, encourage everybody to remember uh, kindness beats anger every time um, and uh, uh, love is a power greater than hate. And there you have it, Dave Smalley. Wow. Excellent, excellent conversation. I mean, look at the body of this guy's work. Everything he's done, it was great getting to hear in depth about all of these bands, those stories about Dag Nasty recording Can I Say and being in the studio with Ian and and seeing Minor Threat back in the day. It It was just great. And catching up on all the bands I wasn't as familiar with, Down By Law, Don't Sleep, awesome stuff. I mean... In addition to the incredible amount of music Dave has given us, it was just really, really nice to talk to as well. I like his philosophy on life and just the way he looks at things and can't say enough nice things. Really interesting guy and a fantastic conversation. Yeah, my first experience with with Dave's music was Down by Law and with the Punkorama um, comps. So I think the first one came out in like 94 and we were all skateboarding pretty heavily at the time. And Down by Law had that really cool song. Let me see if I think of the name here. But it was like the weirdest break in the middle of the record because it the song started with like, uh, and it was totally different. It was after The Offspring. 
um, bright green globe. And it's just like a total break from what the, the comp does. Cause it's just like, okay, this is epitaph nineties, punk, 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 punk. And then it's got this break and then it kicks ass and Dave's voice is just so good. Um, so that was kind of my first experience with, with what he does. And then later, um, listening to the all records he did. The guy has done it all. And it was just an awesome conversation. So thank you so much, Dave, for coming on the show. Jason, you actually have uh, some history with All, right? Didn't you play a fest with All and Descendants? Yeah, so we did the Blasting Room 25th anniversary show in Fort Collins uh, back in 2019. And both All and Descendants played uh, Rise Against, Hagfish... Um, it was us, Armchair Martian, God, Wilhelm Scream. And it was just freaking surreal, right? Because I remember seeing Descendants first time um, for Everything Sucks. And I was 14. I don't even know how I got to the show. I think I had to get dropped off by my mom. It's uh, Palladium in Hollywood. And I remember thinking like, fuck, if we could one day. And we were already kind of playing like the early sort of. Uh, arrangement of what would later become audio karate, like the four of us. And like, we will never play with descendants and Jesus Christ, like those guys just shred and they play so fast for so long. And with like the same, just energy, like truly going for all, like there is no break when you see those guys, um, not then or now. Uh, so to come full circle and be invited to play a show like that, um, I, I could totally relate to when, when Dave was talking about, he gets a call from Bill Stevenson, like, hey, I got this vision. I'm going to do this thing, and I want you to sing for this band. And it's going to be all, it's going to be kick-ass, and I've got a vision. I'd imagine at the time, much like now, Bill Stevenson could have called any punk rock singer under the sun, and they probably would have joined the band, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and I felt that way doing the the anniversary shows, such an honor and... um it, it was really kind of overwhelming of like everyone is recorded at the blasting room over the last 25 years. And I'm sure any one of those bands would have been like, hell yeah, Bill, like we'll be on a plane whenever dude, we'll, we'll play the show. Uh, and for him to be like, no, I don't want to do it unless you, you guys do it. Like lady melody was one of my favorite records I've done at the blasting room. Like you guys have to be there um, was, was a big honor. And it was the first time I got to see all, I just never got around to seeing them. And their records weren't as, I always feel like weren't as readily available, like pre-internet kind of when I was buying punk CDs and records, like you could get the epitaph ones, but like the earlier ones and the cruise ones and those weren't always around. Uh, so now like I get to go back and deep dive them and they're fucking incredible. They're like not punk records. It's like jazz kind of just like played by punk guys. I guess it's punk cause it's got distortion, but um. Those records are incredible. Oh, yeah. Like, huge. And uh, to be able to play that show, just amazing. Because the Blasting Room... Actually, the Blasting Room I discovered through this show. Because I had a guy on who did... Uh, Aaron Pendergrast, I think his name was. He did a documentary about the Blasting Room. And that's how I heard about it. And just the insane number of classic records that have come out of there. So that gig must have just been the best. Yeah, dude. It was freaking unreal um yeah i i know aaron we we actually um are got a bit in that documentary um and i think i think what we said and what i believe holds true is 
if you want to like listen to the best example of American soul music, you've got Motown, right? Yes. And I think if Martians came to the fucking planet Earth and you had to give them the best example of American punk rock, it's going to be a record that was done by Bill at the Blasting Room. I like that. I, I, <laughs> that's a good comparison. Yeah, like that. That's the way I uh, I see it. But um, that makes a lifetime in music uh, worth it for me to have been able to do that and to have you know guys like Bill and Carl say Lady Melody, which you know we we did at Blasting Room was is like one of the best records they've done, and it's still like they listen to it and it kicks their ass and like. That's better than selling a million records to me, to have people you hold in such a high regard and you value their artwork and they're such phenomenal musicians to think highly of something you did is uh, really humbling and kind of fucking surreal, right? It's the best feeling. It's the best feeling in the world. I've never sold a million records, probably never will, but I have had those moments, Jason, that you're talking about where you're acknowledged by someone you looked up to and uh, it's a really, really great feeling. Totally. And now it's fun. Um, we do descendant shows every couple of years. They'll, they'll have us on and to shoot the shit with like Carl and be like, why the fuck did we write these songs so challenging? Like, why didn't we just coast <laughs> a lot more? Because you watch Descendants are all and every one of them for the whole song is just at 10. Like there's no lull for not one of those guys. And uh, that's kind of what we've tried to do with audio karate. Um, there's certainly better musicians out there, but I think a lot of people coast, like they can play like Eddie Van Halen or something, but then you listen to the record and it sounds like, okay, sounds like bad religion or something like, okay, it's just kind of, you're not playing at your upper limits, I guess. Uh, what you hear on an audio karate record, even if it, you think it sucks. Like that's as good as we can play, dude. Like we are playing 10 for 10 at all times, like no lulls, like how much sort of energy can we pack into this? And I think that was kind of the philosophy with all right. Like just fucking go 10 all the time. No break. Like every song is 10 at every moment. That's not a bad way to do it. It's just hard as your hands get arthritis and you get back pain and shit. Do you experience some of that now? Um, yeah, I've, so I've got really weird double jointed fingers to begin with. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely work. Like my hands are cramping and, uh, it's, it didn't seem that hard 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, uh, I want to talk some more about audio karate, Jason, since we have you here. Now we talked a little bit about a show of hands, which is the new EP that's coming out. That's coming out this year, right? Yeah, so that will be released June 30th, uh, so the end of the week on, when when do you earn this? Oh, this is coming out Monday, so yes, tell the people everything. Okay, yeah, so uh, A Show of Hands is our 7-inch EP, and that will be released uh, on the 30th of June on Iodine Recordings. I want to call it Iodine Records, but Casey gets mad at me, he's like, no dude, it's fucking Iodine Recordings. It's a Boston thing or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, and we were super stoked with it. A show of hands. Uh, first music we've recorded in sort of what I would consider the modern era. Because um, our last records were uh, sort of like Tupac's recordings where we just had stuff in the vaults that was all recorded like pre-06. Uh, this stuff we recorded in 2021. And it was kind of cool. We did it at uh, New Monkey Studios in North Hollywood, which was... Uh, previously the personal studio of Elliot Smith. Oh, wow. Yeah. So recording there was, you know, 
the, the vibe and sort of the spirit and uh, the feel of things was really fucking cool. I think the moment we were in the mix room and Gabriel started um, checking his drum levels and everything, we knew like, okay, this is going to be really cool. Like we should be doing this uh, because we had so much sort of apprehension about even recording new stuff. I, I know we were, we were talking like every song feels like your last or, well, this is going to suck or will people like it. Um, shit. Will we like it? Like, yeah, my sort of the way audio karate operates is I bring a hundred riffs to art and I could just play guitar in front of him till I'm blue in the face. And he has a very good way of telling you he doesn't like something without saying anything. And I know like, no matter how good I think it is, like this will never be an audio karate song. It's, and then I'll play something where he's like, okay, do that again. And then three minutes later, he's got a vocal melody and like we write a song. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with um, a show of hands. Like I send him riffs all the time. He's like, eh, I remember we were rehearsing for the the Blasting Room show. And I think Gabriel, Gabe's like the archivist, our drummer. Um, he records everything we do, even when we don't want him to. And he happened to do like a shitty cell phone recording of a of a practice and I was playing a riff and we kind of played a couple bars of something and that became a show of hands and he was able to kind of art was able to kind of deconstruct it and work around it and um, super happy with it. It's, it's mid tempo, but um, immediately recognizable as audio karate. I think that's kind of the measure for me is if the song was played instrumental and you played it to an audio karate fan and kind of gave a like, Hey, who do you think this is? In 10 seconds, I want them to go like, oh, dude, that's fucking audio karate. Right. Because when, uh, you know, when a band is away for a while and then they come back. Now, there's a very fine line. You don't want to come back and sound like yourself at 16 necessarily, right? Because we're older, tastes have changed, we've matured, right? And you don't want to sound like something completely different necessarily because you know, there's been bands who have reunited and they're just doing something completely different. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. So there's a very fine line that you want to strike. I agree. Um, we had no desire to do, uh, you know, Otra or, or Malo 2.0 at, at the same time. We also don't want to be like, oh, we now sound like fucking Radiohead or something like that. Would be, <laughs> yeah. We'd start a new band or something. I think that'd be disingenuous to just slap the audio karate name on it. Cause, Oh, well, you know, we audio karate sells X number of units. And if we start a new band, like we're going to sell 12. Um, <laughs> so no, it felt authentic and felt good and, and immediately felt like an audio karate song. Um, and pretty cool. The, uh, Greg Cortez, the guy, um, the engineer, the, the house engineer and, and one of the co partners in the studio kind of grew up listening to audio karate and was sort of a kid in the scene that we were playing back then and then honed his craft. And now he records, you know, platinum artists. And when we reached out to him, he's like, dude, not only will I do it, but like, I will do it on the bro rate. Cause you can't afford <laughs> the studio and you can't afford me not in a dick way, but like, <laughs> It's it's a real operation, right? And we don't, yeah. and we don't have uh, Sony money, and I refuse to take any money from from Casey and Iodine, um, even though I graciously appreciate the fact that he he is offered. So yeah, like that was really cool to um, kind of come full circle and to have left such an impression on people who are now doing like really good and big things and much 
bigger things in music than we ever did who are now in a position to help us out um, is, is really satisfying and, and really cool. I love it. I love it. When, uh, when was the last time you were in a studio recording music prior to a show of hands? Oh God, a real studio. Um, yeah. Cause I had a studio, um, and I'm doing air quotes right now, but you can't see me, uh, <laughs> in, in Montebello, which is like East LA area in the back of, um, my dad had a real estate office and we converted the garage into a tracking room. And it was a, a decent studio, I guess. That's where we uh, recorded the Malo and the Ultra stuff. But the um, a real studio would have been the Blasting Room, December of 2003. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, now you, you did have experience recording in your own studio. Okay. But it had been a long time before you were in another studio again to record a show of hands. So was that scary? I mean, was it nerve wracking? Oh no, God, no, it's, it's sexy, man. Like that's the best word I could come up with is like, they have a trident board that costs probably as much as my house. And they're like, Oh yeah, dude, whatever vintage gear you want. And to hear again, when you're, when you're getting drum tones and you're getting guitar tones and you hear it coming out of just the best everything it's it if, if anything it boosts your confidence right like i didn't feel first time we were in a studio i felt like a poser like what the <laughs> fuck am i doing here like my guitar doesn't hold tune um do i leave my metal zone like pedal at home or like oh you you guys got gear okay cool we'll use that um so so coming for a show of hands to the studio there was I don't know. It's your confidence, right? Like I'm not a, a race car driver, but I think I would drive better if you put me in a Ferrari. And I feel like that way when, when I'm in a professional studio, right? Like, okay, I'm going to play much better right now because it's pro studio and Greg's a fan of the band and he's into the project. And this is Elliot Smith's place. And we got the ghosts and shit like this is going to happen. Um, I, I love it. Nothing better than being in a cool studio. I love that mindset because I'm nervous before I do anything. And, you know, it's it's usually a long time between studio trips for me and bands. So I the first day I'm very rigid and then I get used to what I'm doing and I nail it. But no, you're like, hey, we're going to be in a world class studio with awesome gear. Like, we're going to nail this. This is awesome. I love that mindset. Yeah. Um and again, like if I don't get that glare or that like uneasy look from art, I know I, I nailed my take again. He has, <laughs> he has a way he'll never say like, Hey, do that again. I, I think you botched something. He'll just kind of like, mm. and I know that mm means ah, you can do better. Do it again, dude. Um, <laughs> I love you art. <laughs> no, that's good that you have, uh, that dynamic and that it works. Right. Because depending on who I'm in a band with, I won't want to hear anything from anybody. But uh, the the fact that you guys have been able to perform together this long and, you know, like you're bringing him riffs and you can listen to uh, feedback from him and that it works. That's a that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I recognize that. And I see I've never played in any other band. Um, Art plays in Sweet and Tender Hooligans uh, with Joe from the Vandals and some other people. It's the world's greatest Smiths and Morsi cover band. Um and he's also singing with a much, much, much bigger pop punk band um, who hasn't announced that he's singing with them. But I'm super happy for him because he's I think he's a fucking fantastic singer. Like, oh, yeah, like uh, I think art should sing for all because I think he's that caliber. Like he's 
so good and and so talented. Um, but no, I've never played with anyone else. So while that brings a lot of baggage, it also brings just a, a calm and a, a confidence in each other. And um, we're definitely each other's harshest critics. So I know if I please those guys, then I've done my job and that uh, Audio Karate fans are going to enjoy it. That's awesome. You kept playing with art after Audio Karate. Were you in Indian school? No. So I went to do sort of life ventures and um, mm-hmm. the guys were like, hey, well, we still want to do the band. And uh, it became one of those things, kind of like we were discussing, you make a, a record that sounds like Radiohead. You don't just slap your band's name on it. You start a new band, right? They started playing with another guitarist and I'm a pretty busy body kind of guy on the guitar. You listen to audio karate music and it's pretty guitar heavy. And I think they realized quickly like, okay, we've got really talented guitar players, but it doesn't sound like audio karate without Jason. So it'd be disingenuous to call it that. Um, so no, I, I didn't. And I got to see Indian school play and it was really weird because I've always wondered what it would be like to watch us. And it's about as close as I can get to doing that. And, um, the record they did in the EP, those songs are super fantastic. Uh, they probably would have been cooler if I would have played on them, but that's kind of neither <laughs> here nor there. Um, so no, I, I hope they actually have enough material recorded already for another record. And I think that'll see the light of day. Um, I should probably pitch Casey on that be like, Hey, you should put out the Indian school record. Um, cause it's really good. Cause again, like those guys are super talented and everything they do is good. And I'm a fan of, um, so I'd, I'd pay to listen to it. So was there a lot of downtime for you until audio karate got started again? I didn't pick up a guitar for 10 years, Keith. Really? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it was weird. Um, like I won't bog you down with details, but we, when we did lady melody, um, and I was, you know, with Bill at the blasting room, that was, I thought, incredible. And you've got like Bill Stevenson and, and Carl Alvarez and those guys going like, this record's fucking, we love this. And then it sells significantly less than your first record. And like, it just kind of doesn't do anything. I wasn't bitter, but I was also just kind of like, well, hell, um, I, that's I, the best I think I can do. Like, I don't know that I have anything else what, what do I do now? Like, and we started, I'm like, okay, well I'll start a recording studio. And then we recorded songs that ended up being sort of the records that we've released since. But once, once I wasn't in a position to do audio karate, I just was like, I don't even want to play guitar. Like it, I don't know how to do that or have no real desire to even do that unless it's in the context of playing with those guys. It's kind of that, that kind of emotional of a thing for me. Um, I guess it's like uh, when people get divorced or something or break up, there's like restaurants you used to go to with that person. Like you can't go to that person, that restaurant anymore. Like there's, ah, yeah. There, does that make sense? Like there's too much baggage there yeah. and I just didn't want to play guitar. So I didn't pick it up. Not for fucking 10 years. You not for like a lick, a riff, nothing. Wow. I, I like that. Uh, well, I don't like that you went through that, but I, I like it in the sense that it's not the most common story because most people jump into another band or continue. But, you know, what you're explaining, that's more rare, at least from the musicians I talk to. What? um, This is going to sound sappy, probably. um, 
but it's it really is true. What I have with those guys in audio karate, the memories and the bond over music and the ability to create together. I'm not very creative like in my work life or, or too many avenues outside that. What I share with those guys, I don't share with my wife. I don't share with my kids. Like that is a unique relationship only to those three guys. And it's um, it's pretty huge when I think of it in that way. Like what I do with those three people, I don't do with anyone on the planet. So yeah, once once doing audio karate um, back when we, we stopped playing for a while uh, was done, I had no desire to to even play guitar. So no guitar for 10 years, you said? Pretty much, yeah. When did you pick it up again? When Audio Karate reunited, was it? Yeah. Were you part of that two? Th- there was a two thousand nine reunion, right? Uh yeah. Let me think about. that. Were you part of that? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that might have been the pre-Indian school kind of Audio Karate thing. Um, uh, we'll, we'll call it like Audio Karate Light, and then they're like, "Yeah, eh, we need to do Indian school." I think they would never say it. They're not as sappy as me, but I think yeah. they felt the same way, and that's why they did Indian school. I see. Uh, so I can I see. so I can relate to like descendants is descendants because it's Milo and those guys. You throw one guy out of the mix and it's all and it's still great, but it's just not. It's not descendants. It's just different. It, it, it can't be. Um, so no, once uh, Wiretap wanted to reissue Space Camp on vinyl, um, and one of the contingencies was like, Hey, cause art reached out kind of sheepishly. Like, are you okay with this? I'm like, Hell yeah, dude. Someone wants to do something with audio karate. Does he know like no one's going to buy it? And he's like, no, he thinks it'll, it'll actually do okay. And then one of his things was like, Hey, do you want to do some shows that might help? And, um, people cared and it was super cool. And then, uh, we did a one reunion show in LA and we reached out to Bill. Hey, we reunited Audio Karate. I know we never got to play together. He's like, oh, dude, Descendants are doing shows. Um, I'll send you a list. Pick whatever dates you guys want to do. Would love to have you on. Awesome. And then that kind of gathered steam. And then it's like, hey, we have uh, these songs that I think we can mix and we can turn into like actual records. I, th- I remembered them as being a lot more rough. And then once you kind of push up the faders, you're like, oh, shit, these are actual like song songs. Um, so we've since had two releases and sort of this iteration of audio karate has kind of been doing it now longer than we did our first go around, which is, is kind of interesting. I mean, the pan, yeah. the pandemic obviously forced a big buffer in there that bought up some time, but yeah. And we're in a fortunate position now and feel truly blessed that short of some like, um, punk hip hop stuff, like that's a thing, right? Like those guys with the tattooed faces that put out records on Epitaph and stuff. Like, oh yeah, like, yeah. like short of some shit like that. Anything we take, Casey um, and Iodine that doesn't suck. He's like, oh fuck yeah, bro, I'll put it out. Like, what what do you want to do? LP, EP, like whatever. When did you uh, initially get in touch with Casey? Uh, Twenty eighteen, I think. It was weird. Yeah. It was almost like Tinder, but not. Um, somehow we commented on like something through social media uh like instagram or something and then we got to talking and it's like oh well, i'm in a band and then you listen to it's like oh well that's cool hey i actually really like that well i'm thinking of redoing my label and you know well i'm like oh well where are you at and we ended up being like a block from each other in los angeles it's like as dumb luck would have it and we met and we hit it off and um he doesn't mind that i make the same bad boston jokes all the time around him <laughs> and um 
I've become kind of his go-to source for all things sort of like Mexican-American. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a really good relationship. I'm very happy with the way they've been treating us. And we've been very fortunate in that Kung Fu Records took care of us 100%. And Wiretap has taken care of us 100%. And now Iodine takes care of us 100%. And there's no sort of obligation of like, hey, can you guys maybe do more of this or less of that? He's like, dude, whatever the fuck you guys want to do, it's cool. I like your music. I like you guys. Like family, do it. So very, very fortunate. I love it. Yeah. I'm happy to be part of the label as well. And Jason, do you realize we are double label mates now because of the podcast? And I also play bass in the Darling Fire now. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Nice. I like How that. How about that? I like that record a lot. Well, I me, I, me too. That's why I joined. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't like much of anything, man. I'm a, a crotchety old man and I can find reasons. <laughs> like I find reasons not to like something before I find reasons to like something, which is probably why I listen to supermarket music from the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I looked up? Speaking of supermarket music, again, I looked up uh, old Pathmark commercials from the 80s and 90s. I don't know why that was a grocery store around here when we were growing up. So uh, there's another supermarket tie-in there. And uh, I bring up the band, not to talk about myself, everybody, which I know I love doing, but I just realized I'm sitting here talking to one of my label mates, and I'm just grateful that, one, I'm on the label, and two, I'm on the label with Jason, and we get to talk about this stuff. So it, it, I don't know. It just I, I feel grateful in this moment. So there you go. Ah, oh, man, it's super cool. It's it's rewarding. Um, I find it very rewarding to still make new relationships and, and new friends at sort of this stage in life that don't revolve around like, oh, your kid and my kid do gymnastics together. Cool. Uh, do you like <laughs> baseball? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I don't like baseball. Um, yeah, so no, to, to have people um, who kind of get it and sort of get uh, – the craziness that comes with being um, a musician and, and doing the thing is um, really cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Jason, I'm looking forward to the EP. I've heard a show of hands and it is really awesome. And everybody, you can listen to it on Spotify or check out the new scene 2023 Spotify playlist. I'm going to add it there as well. But by the time you hear this, the EP will be out. So buy it, get it, listen to it. Let's support Jason and audio karate. But uh, Jason, is there any shows or anything coming up we can announce? Where can we see you? Yeah, so we are going to Chicago for the first time ever. I don't know how the hell we missed Chicago in our touring years, and we were doing you know 300 days a year. Missed it. So we are playing uh, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, and Champaign, Illinois on July 28th, 29th, and 30th with Tightwire. Uh, who are on Red Scare and who have a fucking great new record and a super kick ass. So we are stoked for that. Um, so you can see us there. August 19th, we'll be headlining uh, EP release show at the Paramount in East Los Angeles, which we are super happy for. And uh, we will be doing Fest and some pre-Fest shows. Um, so you can catch us there if you're in Florida. And Casey keeps trying to warm us to the northeast, but uh, I'm afraid we'll get like stabbed or something. That place is scary. So, nah, you'll be fine. <laughs> well, yeah, because <laughs> we know people with cred, right? 
Yeah, you have cred, you know people with cred. You know, I'll I'll put in a word for you. It'll be fine. Thank you. And uh you should check out the B side to a show of hands. It's called Return of a Monster in Disguise and it's uh it's about as broody as we get. So it's it's kind of in the darling fire vein. I uh I'm all about broodiness. That's my life, Jason. That's my life. I'm into it. I know, and and this is for you, man. You'll you'll dig it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jason, this was great. I, I'm looking forward to more. Uh, I hope you make it to the Northeast. That way I can come see you and we can hang out. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Keith, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, yeah, man, I'm looking looking forward to the guests you keep having because you keep having people that I want to listen to. So thank you so much for that. Hey everyone, it's me. I hope everyone had and is having a fantastic 4th of July weekend. I know I am. This is some much needed time off that I am utilizing to the max. So happy to have a couple days off. I wanted to come back in the end here to pay tribute to a friend who recently died. And this is hard because, well, this is the third eulogy I've done on the show this year. Earlier this year, we lost Ian Kerner of Blue Skies Fade. And shortly after that, we lost TJ DeBloy, who drummed for A Life Once Lost and Like Lions and so many other bands. And on Thursday, June 22nd, I lost my friend Terrence Walsh, who lived in Philadelphia and was a musician. And he knew TJ. We all knew each other. They knew each other from recovery. I know TJ from growing up. I know Terrence from recovery. I'll get to that in a second. TJ actually drummed on some music that Terrence did. That compilation for TJ that uh, Vadim put together, there's a track from Terrence on that, and it features TJ on drums. So check that out. And Terrence has uh, a number of albums on Spotify and all big streaming platforms. You can search his music under the name Terrence Walsh. That's his name. And I met Terrence back in 2017. I was new to recovery, figuring things out. I went to a meeting in Philadelphia and I look across the room and I see Terrence and I keep looking at him and he keeps looking at me. I just felt like he was, I just felt like he was familiar for some reason. Like I knew him or I don't know, but After the meeting, he came up to me and talked to me, and we traded numbers, and we had stayed in touch ever since. He would come up to New York and hang out. We'd go out to eat, go to a meeting. I'd go down to Philadelphia. I'd meet up with him, and we'd hang out or go to a meeting or both. I just saw him, I don't know, three weeks ago. He was up here in New York City. We have a mutual friend. We met up, went to a meeting, went out to dinner great night. Really happy that I got to see him again before this happened. And this happened very unexpectedly and very suddenly. Um, I don't, I'm not sure what to say or how to feel during these things. During these types of deaths, I should say, TJ died of an overdose. Okay. Terrence died of an overdose. I had TJ back on the show 
within the first, I don't know, 10 episodes of the show. It was early on. And this was right when the pandemic was kicking off. And after recording, I was talking to TJ on the line with Tommy. And TJ mentioned that he wasn't in recovery anymore and that he was drinking casually again. And I remember being so scared when he told me that. I was like, you know, he's going to die. That's it. It's over. But three years went by and I, you know, I didn't have a ton of contact with TJ, but we were still friendly. We were still friends, of course. And if I had seen him, I would have been happy to see him. But I saw him active on social media and working and having girlfriends. And I was like, maybe he's fine. Maybe he eased back into a regular life and is drinking again and is fine. And then word came out that he was dead. And, you know, from what I heard, uh, he started using drugs again. He had tried to go to a meeting again. And hearing that made me happy. But he died. And Terrence, uh, Terrence was clean for a period of time. I think a couple years. But he used one time and died. And that's just the way it is out there now. Because of fentanyl. And it's not a... It's in everything, and it's not a cop propaganda, you know, it really is in everything, and it really is dangerous, because you can use one time and die just like Terrence did. And I don't know, I'm not saying that, you know, I, it's just hard to quantify this and, and talk about it. It's, I don't know, I don't want to get up on a pedestal and tell everybody to run into recovery, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to tell you to like, get drug testing kits and test your drugs. When I was doing drugs, I wasn't testing them, okay? I got them and I needed to get them into me as quickly as I could. So I, 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 guess, uh, I guess what I'll say is this. Be safe, as safe as you can these days, I guess, and just know that there's help out there if you want it. Nobody could make me get help when I didn't want it. And I can't make you get help if you don't want it. But if you do want help, it's out there, and you just have to reach out. And believe me, I know how hard it is. With how messed up our country is and with how screwed up our medical system is, even if you want help, it can be impossible to get. I remember when I decided that I wanted help, I had no idea what to do. I remember walking around Penn Station on my lunch break, cold calling psychiatrists and being, and you know them telling me, we're full, we're full, we can't help you. We don't take your insurance. I remember going to a doctor and getting a blood test in the middle of my addiction, and they said everything's fine, everything looks fine. You just have you're just deficient in vitamin D. And then I confessed to the doctor, "Hey, I'm addicted to drugs. I need help." And he's like, "I can't help you with that." So it, even if you decide that you want help, it's really hard to get help, and it's really hard to find the right help. And it's a lot easier to you know buy ten dollars worth of powder and take that than it is to invest years in building yourself back up and helping yourself mentally and physically and all that. I get it. I get it. It's, it's, it's so it's, the odds are stacked against us, but I'm going to miss Terrence. I really am. He was a, he was a really great person and, uh, I am sad to suffer his loss. So he just released a new EP on May 30th. I will close by reading that post. He says, it's his last post. He says, say your goodbyes EP out next Tuesday, May 30th. And then he gives a description of the tracks here. Paper Moon, 
The first track was recorded in one take on my father's piano at his house. He was in the hospital at the time, and I wrote this in about a day for him. Track two, Father's Carpets. The second track includes the first verse I ever wrote in my life. It details a relationship from many moons ago. Omega Ring. Track three is an interpretation of a failed relationship. Track four, Weep by the Sea, a love letter to an old friend. And the final track, Vaquero Song. The final track originally began as a short story I could never finish, so I turned it into a song. It details a returning home of sorts for a funeral. Say Your Goodbyes stands as a eulogy for all things ending, including relationships, identities, and life itself. Hope this short record finds you well and it is able to make you feel something and or allow you to walk away from it with a new or forgotten idea. Ugh, that's rough. So his new EP is available on streaming services under his name, Terrence Walsh. So that's it. Rest in peace, Terrence. Just be safe out there because it's just too easy these days to uh, make one mistake and then be gone forever. So uh, we're going to end the show with my favorite track from Terrence. It's called Dreams. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. Take care of yourselves.